In every generation, there is a chosen one. A show that becomes a pop culture juggernaut. We're talking Beverly Hills, 90210. Twin Peaks. Jersey Shore. The Good Wife. And sometimes a show will come and go without anyone even noticing. They may have only been on air for one season or less, but the drama, the joy, the tragedy, it will all be remembered here and now. That's Abby. And that's Roberto. And this is Dearly Departed. Dearly Departed, are you listening? We will remember all about you. When you were cancelled, we were trembling. We can't believe that they would doubt you. We won't forget you and the rest. Dearly Departed, dearly Departed. Everyone and welcome to just a really exciting episode of Dearly Departed. I'm putting on my red lipstick because this is a disco-infused party episode. <laughs> With us we have the incomparable, the amazing, the one and only Cornelia. Hi, I'm Cornelia. <laughs> Cornelia is the perfect guest for this episode because... I mean, it's sexy, it's flirty, it's 70s. We chose this show specifically because, I mean, you're our dear, close, personal friend in real life. We knew we had to have you on the pod. And oh, bless your I heart. know there, there were rumblings about a show with Parker Posey that I think were originally on the table. And then I stumbled upon this gem and instantly I knew that we had to cover it. There was no other option at that point. The world came into focus. It came into view. <laughs> Everything was aligning. And I'm really glad we watched the show. It's not perfect. It has its flaws. Y'all, this was such a good show. I'm so glad we yeah. watched it um, individually, but together. Yeah. Um, did we schedule this months ago? Yes. Did me and Abby barrel our way through it in the last two days? Absolutely. Did Cornelia um, watch it twice already this year? Yes, <laughs> that is accurate. That's called doing the homework. The show in question is CBS's Swing Town. Um, I don't know how to fully verbalize why this show would be so perfect. I guess because when we met, one of the first things that we that I learned about you was your love of swinging culture. Um Yeah. <laughs> I, I I I don't know how to feel about how when from whence we first met, that was what stuck. <laughs> I couldn't really tell you how that came up in the first place. I know that there's certain, like, I I feel like you have proclaimed me a connoisseur of sleaze and I've accepted that title, but it's kind of a topic that I find intriguing. It's something that I'm, you know, I'm not a part of this community as we're recording this, but I respect the institution um, well, I think I was starting to first, I was excited about the concept of Reddit. I have only recently dived in and you opened me up, opened me up to some really exciting Reddit pages, including the swingers Reddit page, as well as some Facebook, a Facebook page that I really love. I'm just here for sexual liberation and the, the tumultuous and 
gaudy and politically charged landscape of the 1970s. This show bit off a lot of my favorite things. Um, Fashions. You know, fashion, 70s fashion, 70s architecture, 70s interior design, beautiful women in bikinis, disco clubs, playboy clubs, swingers clubs, key parties, cheating on your husband, leaving your husband, <laughs> refusing to cook dinner for your husband, um, refusing to move Constantly being invited to the neighbor's house. Constantly being invited to the neighbor's house to party with the neighbors, husband swapping with the neighbors, getting in bed with the neighbors, having sex in the pool with the neighbors. Um, what else? I mean, that's... And then it's the whole show that happens after the pilot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Then there's also, you know, those CBS forced plot lines, which is why we have to spend a third of the time watching the children who I cannot stand. Well, apparently they wanted the show to be a mix of Boogie Nights and The Wonder Years. Um, I've seen neither, but I'm a big fan of Boogie Nights. And I, having rewatched this and watched Boogie Nights recently, it's definitely what they were trying for. And it's definitely what they missed. Right. I mean, if they had done almost everything differently, the show would have been (laughs) literally flawless. I mean, if this had been on Showtime or HBO... And been able to give us that, um, you know, explicit sexual content that we crave. And it had wasted a little less time on BJ, the son with no personality. And also shoehorning in a really sort of forced and very unrealistic plotline with the daughter. Like, if we had gone without that. And this had just been like a really sexy show about this like wife discovering her sexuality and like her and her husband having like group sex and opening themselves up to the thrills, chills and et cetera, et cetera of swinging. This would have been my favorite show I'd ever seen. But it's not. But it's not. So let's fucking dive in. So we have, so Swing Town is a 2008 drama that premiered. 2008, which we haven't done yet. Fresh for us. Um, it premiered on June 5th as a mid-season summer replacement, I believe, for CBS. Now, the show was created by Mike Kelly, who, you know, I know him from his exceptional work on the Netflix show What If, which is a one-season wonder that we will have to tackle at some point on Oh, crossing podcast. my fucking fingers. And you know what? We should bring Nelly back for that one. I absolutely agree. Let's put it in the books let's Let's schedule it you know for six months from now yeah um but you might also um recognize his work on abc's revenge which is a show that i really enjoyed for the first four episodes right and then it kept going so you know he's he's done something also produced with alan Poole, who is of six feet under fame which is a show I really enjoy. I only enjoy like six shows and one of my guys is in Can you here. name all of them? Twin Peaks, Pushing mm-hmm. Daisies, Six Feet Under, Mrs. Fletcher. Um, let's go Sex in the City and uh, House Hunters International. So I'm getting Death, Magical Realism, Hi. Female Sexuality, and interior pie. design. And pie. And pie. And pie. 
you're also kind of a reality TV queen. Mm, I wouldn't say that. <laughs> I just feel like anyone who can name any top model contestant kind of just like I just feel like you love America's Next Top Model and you didn't put it on your list I love top model I don't love reality TV okay I'll give you that (laughs) what about love is blind what about all of the wedding TLC shows that you love I feel like you're just projecting onto me now (laughs) (laughs) All I'm pointing out are things shows that you watch. Things that we've so, shared together. You know what? If it's a if it's a projection, then I'll fucking take it. But I just know what I've seen. Is all I have to say. So, Mike Kelly and Alan Poole. Is that how you say it? I love that you're oh, looking at me. I don't know. Great. Um, they pitched <laughs> the show to HBO, where we would have gotten everything we probably would have wanted and more. Um, but they passed. But then because... you know what? It probably would have gotten a second season. Exactly. Um, HBO passed because they already had Big Love. Has anyone seen Big Love? Which I have Did seen. You like it? I've seen the first season. Is it about swinging? It's about polygamy in Utah amongst, I believe, Mormons. Okay, so not the same. It had a really, it had a really interesting cast. I only saw the first season and maybe a chunk of the second. My parents were, were really into Jennifer it. Jennifer Goodwin, but. Jennifer Goodwin, Jean Triplehorn, Chloe Sevigny, Bill Paxton was the husband. And Amanda Seyfried was amongst one of the children. But I could not really tell you anything about it. I mean, I've indulged in a little Sister Wives. However, if we're talking about, you know, husband swapping, wife swapping, et cetera, et cetera, swinging is going to really, like, take the W for me. So HBO passed. And then it was presented to Showtime before, unfortunately, ending up at CBS. Um, The only other notable person from production that I jotted down or saw was Carol Barbie, who was the showrunner on season two of Unreal, which was not very good. Okay. So, excuse me. (laughs) What are you chewing? A Hershey's chocolate. King, I am so craving chocolate right now. You know, I'm, it's that time of the month and I just want that chocolate like 24 hours Do you want to go day. get a piece of chocolate real quick before we continue? No, it's okay. I'm going to have like self-control so I can like eat more later. You're powerful. So this show is described as a new period drama that takes viewers back to the 1970s for a look at suburban households testing the murky waters of sexual revolution following swingers throughout open marriages, key parties, and other swingers' extravaganzas. That's a really bad blurb. Who wrote that? Um, Amazon. Oh, yeah. So... Would you say that's an accurate description of the show? I, uh, I have a thought. <laughs> Are you familiar with the um, with the theory of the nostalgia pendulum? No, but I'm about to be. Educate me. So there's, it's pretty common. It's in media. There's something that's considered a 30-year cycle for nostalgia. And it's basically through marketing, but also happenstance. Uh, about every 30 years... Like there will be a boom in period pieces about uh, about whatever was going on thirty years prior. So, Can't wait for the two thousands boom, and it and it kind of happens because like in like considering when people are children, thirty years from then they'll be like ideal consumers. 
and stuff will get marketed to appeal to their nostalgia, but also, you know, kids grow up, become kind of more lucrative creators, and then naturally they'll be inspired by stuff that happened as kids. So I was kind of looking through, I mean, this is like my shit stuff made in the 90s that takes place in the 70s, but I was just looking through like in the 10 years previous to when Swingtown came out, because Swingtown is 32 years after it takes place. Um, In the 10 years before, we had Boogie Nights, Zodiac, Almost Famous, Milk, Ice Storm, Summer of Sam, and Austin Powers, debatably. So this is really like the backwash of like being able to cater to (laughs) 70s nostalgia. Because then... And you can tell. Yeah. Well, I have a theory too, because... Um, this ended like in the fall of 2008. That's when Obama was elected. And I think that was like the one time, at least in recent memory, that people actually wanted to live in the present. So I feel like people didn't really give a shit about catering to their 70s whims. But that's just my theory. Uh, the way you're making such intelligent connections. I went to I, a school. I appreciate it. No, I agree. It's honestly a shame that I haven't consumed more 70s content. But then Glee well, came out in 09, right, as <laughs> this ended. So I feel like people were like, we're ready to learn about the social lives of today. And and Glee is that. Glee, yeah. Right. Glee, was, Glee was our generation's sexual revolution. <laughs> I know you're not on TikTok, Cornelia, but all of the Glee-related TikToks that have just made their way to my For You page has has been so refreshing, exciting. I feel like I finally have a community of people who both despise and adore Glee. I mean, the universal, I would say cyberbullying of Matthew Morrison that's taking place on TikTok is something I can really get behind. I can't wait to see him play the Grinch. There's a petition to throw him in Guantanamo Bay. (laughs) Um... I mean, that's fair. Look, he broke Chriselle's heart. Crimes against humanity. Crimes against humanity, crimes against Chriselle. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Her spinoff show, Crimes Against Chriselle, (laughs) where she takes revenge on Matthew Morrison. Greenlight it. um, I do feel like we have to admit, so you watched all of these episodes on Daily Motion, right? Um, for some of them somebody on the swingers page did offer oh by the way the swingers of reddit big fan of this show um oh i did ask probably because they just don't get to see a lot of swingers representation um yeah there was a show i couldn't really tell you the title right now but it's a reality show that's supposedly about wife swapping and it's not wife swap but they're like that's harmful to our community but swing town we liked so i'm kind of it, 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 I didn't expect that response, but I'm right. here for it. <laughs> Daily Motion, right. So we watched half of the first episode on there. And then I really wanted to give this show the benefit of the doubt. And it looked so kind of, what's the word? Hideous on Daily Motion that Abby and I ended up purchasing it. And I just have to live with that. Did it help? Yes. Because on Dailymotion, it was pixelated as well as mirrored. There's ones that aren't pixelated or mirrored. 
Well, we don't need to hear those. Okay. (laughs) Look, it was money well spent. I'm going to tell my mom it's on her Amazon and she should watch it too. She might enjoy it. A little getaway, a little home vacay. Is there anything else pre context background that you wanted to tackle Cornelia? Uh, No, mostly just that I'm the going into the show and having, cause I, I watched it over the summer cause I wanted to watch it with like clear eyes and not having the pressure to write notes about it. And it, it just reminded me of so many things I liked more than the show and things that the show like <laughs> tried to accomplish and failed at. And I was like, what gives? And I was like, Oh, it was too late. <laughs> Off the top of your head. Can you think of things that maybe people listening to this should watch instead of swing town? Uh, Boogie Nights and the Ice Storm, hands down. So keep that in mind. So the pilot episode opens, and we are in July of 1976. You know, 4th of July is looming. And the opening shot of the series can only be described as what feels like a cheap 70s porno opening. You know, we meet Tom, who is played by Grant Show who is famous for starring as Bad Boy Jake on the legendary Beverly Hills 90210 spinoff, Melrose Place. And you can currently watch him um, on the CW's reboot of Dynasty. We open on him. He has a beautiful stash. He has a hot, sexy, handlebar 70s porn stash. He's really gorgeous. Um, We open on him. He's in a plane. He's a pilot. And he's making an announcement over the speaker. Um, While a head of feminine blonde hair moans and bobs up and down in his lap. Also, Spirit in the the Sky by Norman uh, Greenbaum is just like blasting. Blasting. The music in the show is really fun. The music is really good. Um, Anyway, it turns out to just be a stewardess cleaning up a a spilled stain. Now, I know it's a metaphor for the show. Really? You think it's going to be sexy little oral? Backwash was a really good word, Cornelia. Oh, Um, I know what you're thinking. Oh my God, how long is it going to take for the show to, you know, get to swinging? Um, It actually doesn't take very long because um, instantly Pilot Tom invites another hotter, younger stewardess back to his house. Um, And, you know, she's worried. She's like, well, what about your wife? And that's not going to be a problem because his wife is joining. These are the Deckers. Oh, I love them. They're the best part. The Deckers, exactly. Trina is the most fun character on the show. Um, Arguably one of the main reasons to watch if you decide to invest time and energy and possibly money into this. She's so beautiful and she has the best outfits. She is played by Lana Barilla, um, a Puerto Rican Italian queen most famous for her time as the evil queen on once upon a time she kind of looks like a sexy betty rubble i kept thinking um trina is really beautiful and i really like her performance in this show i don't care for once upon a time and i don't remember being rocked by her in the few episodes that i did watch of that show but now that i've seen her on this i would love to see more of her work because i'm a fan yeah i would say that all around the performances are are good i think that the actors i do you not agree cornelia i don't (laughs) 
I didn't find the acting to be the biggest problem in this show. I mean, there's one performance that <laughs> stands apart from the rest as the worst, most offensive. And then you also have the child actors to contend with. I just found the adult leads to be watchable, especially, you know, I'm coming from the women. a place, the women, yes, of watching so many of these like awful, god awful one season shows. I, you know, in comparison, the acting was was pretty darn okay. For the stuff that we watch for this podcast, I agree. <laughs> I'm a big fan of shutting things off the moment they bother me, so <laughs> I found it really grating towards the end, some of these performances, but you know, they they tried. But but what does that fucking say that me and Abby have been w- so worn down by some of the one season shows that we've watched that a show like this is like, oh my god, wait, they're serving a performance. <laughs> I mean, look, I'll say it now before we even get deep. This show can eat Mob City for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. It's true. Mob City can choke compared to this shit. So Tom and Trina, the Deckers, are the main swingers of this series. And they, their characters are, are the people that are supposed to take us on a, on a whirlwind, you know, journey storm. Um, except the show does go about 10 miles an hour and um, nothing really happens. I mean, they're the only characters that actually swing. It's true. Consistently on this show that's supposedly about swinging. Well, I remember in high school, you know, when I was a dreamer and wanting to be a TV showrunner, um, there's a documentary called Showrunner. And in it, I believe that we see Mike Kelly and he talks about his experience on Swingtown in which he received a note from the studio, from CBS, um, asking him if there could be less swinging. The show is called Swingtown. That's why I'm here. I am here to watch couples have sex, to swap, to live the fantasy that is being denied to me in this 2020 pandemic. They probably thought it was just like the Steve Miller story as a TV show. And then they thought they they read the the notes and they're like, oh, dang it. <laughs> I mean... It, it in context of 2008 being like network television this kinds of like this kind of like censorship and just like watering down makes sense like that's what they were doing and that's arguably what they're still doing and like they obviously weren't ready as a network to give us the kind of shit that we you know are more used to on television now in the year 2020 um i think if they had made the show now they would have done a better job because we have you know more knowledge of what's out there sexuality wise i just don't have that much faith in hollywood um that being said at first when watching this before i knew that the intention was to be a mix of boogie nights and the wonder years which as far as i know is like a coming of age like story about like 14 year olds discovering love or something right it's like a a comedy or something um I assumed that all of the bullshit storylines involving the teens and tweens was to make up time, you know, for all the sex they had to cut out. But it seems like their intention was to always have, you know, these these kids do what they do. I mean, if the plot lines with the kids were completely and utterly different, then it could have been good. (laughs) 
So after having sex with the stewardess, Tom and Trina look out of the window and spot the new couple moving in. And there's this predatory look that crosses their face. And I know you mentioned this, Abby, while we were watching that, you know, the, the idea of, of the swingers being painted as, as these predators who are out to get everyone to swing. It just kind of seems like anything I've ever watched with swinging. It's like the main swingers are like always looking for fresh meat and like, who can we bring over to our dark side? Of course, ultimately that's not how Trina and Tom end up being, but I do feel like it's just sort of like a fallback way of portraying swingers that I don't think is necessarily accurate. It worked here because they do end up being able to pull a few, you know, new people into their circle. I just feel like the Lifetime movie that we all watch, Suburban Swingers Club, was far sexier. Was it? Because there was, no, there was just only one scene with swinging. But there was just a sensuality about the entire movie that I feel like this show does not have. Yeah, I guess. They just like go to one key party and then she gets stalked. And that's the whole movie. By a hot guy who's shirtless the entire time while he's building a boat. To me, that's a win. And perhaps yeah. a biblical allegory. Exactly. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Maybe this show would have benefited from a little more biblical illusion. <laughs> I need more wrath, please, for my swing town <laughs> viewing pleasure. So before we even get a chance to meet the new neighbors, I was assaulted by the image of a tween-aged Britt Robertson. <laughs> I don't have a problem with Britt Robertson. In fact, I I like her, arguably more than I think a lot of people do. Um, it's just, you know, this show has a lot of almost moments, right? It's a lot of almost sexy moments. It's a lot of almost swinging that is always interrupted interrupted by a cutaway to a scene of a 14-year-old, <laughs> like, on a walkie-talkie. And it's like, what the fuck? What Here's the-, the thing, like... What show is Britt Robertson on? Because it's not Swingtown. That's they the cast thing. her for a different fucking show. And then they just cut that shit together. She's good. Arguably one of the, the stronger acting performances. And it's like, but what show is she on? She was the only face I recognized when I first watched this, which was like a bad sign. Oh my God, Roberta recognized everyone. I just It's true. I just want to upfront diagnose everybody in this cast as having Canada face. <laughs> so I was like, see, I feel like I should recognize you and then I would Google them and be like, yeah, no, they're just from Canada. I think you're so fucking right. It's like even though I even the people I didn't recognize, there was just the inkling of like, wait. I love all of the women on the show. I hate all of the men on the show with the exception of Tom because his mustache looks like a park bench on which I would like to sit. I mean, you're not alone. So Britt Robertson's character, I think is named Sam. I'm not quite sure. It is. But she has been squatting at the, in this neighboring house become because her mom is a messy, messy queen. Um, at one point in this episode, her mom tells Britt Robertson to go to the store and buy tinfoil and her mother uses it to block out the windows and this is never never again revisited and I just have questions what is she doing in there sex drugs 
But why does she need tin foil to block out the windows? Can't she just use curtains? You don't like the shiny ambiance of tin foil over your windows? Well, I guess I've never tried it. Maybe if I was having hot swinger sex and doing cocaine. Maybe she pokes little patterns into the tin foil for a starlit uh, night under the stars look. Wow. But I, the whole thing is that this woman, like, even though she's having a lot of sex in her house, she's not supposed to because she's married and she's cheating on her on the husband that we never see. Is that supposed to be a weird gag? That we never see the husband? Yeah. I just think they desperately wanted Heather Graham to play the slutty absent mom. And I think Heather Graham was probably busy doing gosh knows what else being Heather Graham. And they therefore didn't write her a storyline. Right. No, thank God that you brought up Heather Graham because she was also, it might've been cut out from our last episode, but we learned that Chad Michael Murray has written a series of mystery books with Heather Graham, not the Heather Graham, a different Heather Graham, but it just feels like her spirit is always in this room. Interesting. Well, Heather Graham was in Boogie Nights, which I can only assume they were like, had her in mind. Jesus. So the new neighbors are Bruce who is played by Jack Davenport, um, which some people might recognize from Pirates of the Caribbean or one of my favorite shows, NBC's Smash. He is best known for playing jackasses, which he does really well. He also is an English actor who cannot fake an American accent um, if there was a gun pointed to his head. And... His American accent is like this. I'm doing an American accent. I just kept thinking he looked like if Chris Evans wasn't rich. (laughs) (laughs) I don't see it. Am I crazy? I appreciate that. I've never seen this man in anything else. I just like hate his character on Smash and I hate his character on this show even more. And I don't think he's a bad actor, but I think he's awful at an American accent. And I honestly just wanted him off my television screen for the entire 13 hours. Sorry, I'm still stuck on Chris Evans. That's really fucking With funny. like a bad shag haircut. No, yeah. Yeah. So Bruce... um, And his wife, Susan, who is an Emmy-nominated actress known for her work on Deadwood and House of Cards. I really like Susan. Susan rocks. Yeah. Susan fucking rocks. I'll say it now and I'll say it till the end. Susan is the best character on the show. Maybe besides Trina. I guess Trina's the best character, but I fuck with Susan. I was rooting for Susan. I was desperate for Susan to fucking ditch Bruce since minute two. Are you crawling out of your skin, Cornelia? No, I just... I, I don't know. Molly, I, it's Molly Parker. You said Molly Parker is the actress. I recognized her just, she's the kooky theater director from Madeline's Madeline. And it's the same performance. She has the exact same intonation. And it made so much sense having seen Madeline's Madeline after this being like, oh, that's just like how she talks. <laughs> so it made, like, she fits really well in a 70s period piece, in my opinion. I don't, I mean, I've like written a character like this that's kind of like a, a winsome and housewife who never really got a shot at life and stuff. And you like want to root for her and seeing it actually play out. I was like, hmm, I, I need more. She needs to do something crazy and it never happened. 
Yeah. I mean, so the Deckers are, are of course, the swingers. They're at that extreme. And then we have an, the other couple that we're going to meet later who are just like the most boring grading characters possible. So Bruce and Susan are definitely just supposed to be this middle ground, you know, the straight man. The ones that we are supposed to relate to as the viewer. And Bruce is so fucking awful that it's like, well, I guess I just have to root for Susan. By this point in the show, I am immediately reminded of The Secret Life of the American Teenager. Did either of you watch? No. I did, but not all of it. It's just one of those shows in which every single character and plot point has to involve sex in some capacity. Like, there is not a single episode of The Secret Life of the American Teenager that isn't about sex. And with this show, it was interesting to see how they... how how they were trying to reach for that just like how can we relate this back to sex even though the show is not sexy i honestly didn't feel that way at all because i felt like they were so like in a show that should have just been about sex they kept trying to make it about literally everything else like i i felt like they were just desperate to try and make it about something other than sex well, st- but it was so thinly veiled, I felt like it was just kind of like the tweens are trying are like emerging sexually, you know, the neighborhood mom is like a slut. And that's why her life is falling apart. And she's a drug addict. You know, he- there's a lot of cheating going on the student teacher relation. It's just anyway, I wish they had given me that sex in the city. Every scene is about sex. Let's be graphic. Let's give the details. Like I wish they had given me that show. Literally. So I just have to talk about this moment. It's not an important plot moment, but it was so bizarre to me that I need to hear everyone's take. As Bruce and Susan are finishing up the move, there's this weird moment where Susan's like, I have to go upstairs. And it's almost like she has a secret. And then it seems like her daughter's in on it. And then her daughter even gets bruce to get out of the house because bruce is like oh i'll help you with whatever you're doing and their daughter Lori is like no dad help me like let like leave mom be and then susan proceeds to go upstairs guys i'm on the edge of my fucking seat like she has a secret box of sex photos she she has something you know but it's just a shot of susan sitting on the carpet in their old bedroom crying i get the the feeling that Susan, besides getting knocked up when she was 17, which is also a very heavy-handed conversation that happens right before this moment, I feel like she hasn't experienced many uh, really difficult, like, I don't think anything that difficult has happened in her life. So I'm assuming having to move houses for the first time and not only move houses, but move like three blocks over, that's probably a lot for her. Yeah, I mean, getting emotional over a move is one thing. I just needed to understand why everyone was acting so weird about it. It just seemed like the director gave them certain motivations that that I'm not privy to. It was not well executed, but I do think it was also kind of setting up that, like, Lori, Lori is, you know, a sort of a young, up-and-coming feminist, and she... <sighs> is always like rooting for her mom and always trying to get her mom to like do her own thing. So I guess she just saw her mom was having an emotional moment and wanted to like get her dad out of the way so that she could have that moment. Right. Speaking of Lori, she is played by Shayna Collins who has worked, you know, she has a Wikipedia page 
she has credits, but I would say that Swing Town is definitely, you know, the biggest thing that she's done. Um, I didn't mind her. She she reminded me of the lead from the ABC Family show that me and Abby used to talk about, Siren, that we no longer watch. She was cute. I mean, she is a fine actor or whatever. I mean, her character was 17. She definitely seemed like a teenager. Um, she has a pretty face. I found her kind of difficult to watch, but I, I kept thinking she looks like, like if I had to place her in a TV show, she kind of looks like one of those mid-aughts top model contestants that like maybe has a fluke first photo like early on, but doesn't make it overseas. And Tyra's like so disappointed in her because she doesn't look like an actress to me. I understand exactly what you're talking about. She, it's just like, I feel like I want to give her the benefit of the doubt as an actress. I don't think it was her fault that the character is insufferable. Like, I just think that the character was written. I, I still root for her as a character, but. To me, I felt similarly to Cornelia in which I found her difficult to watch at first, but then her storyline with you know, her teacher. So in this pilot, we, her Lori, the teen daughter, she's currently dating a loser who can't read apparently. And (laughs) um, he has the hot, she has the hots for her summer school AP philosophy teacher. And that's the one thing we're supposed to know about her is that she's very precocious and really smart and taking summer school classes just for fun because she loves learning. She's a thirst for knowledge. Her storyline was the one that I, that I felt like I could cling to, even though immediately, of course, in, in a similar fashion to the to the the younger kids that we then see, it, her scenes interrupt the sexy moments that I want. But then it's like, okay, fine. Like, at least I don't have to fucking look at BJ and, you know, the other kid. Um, I mean, we have to talk about the storyline between her and Doug, but we'll get to that later. I think one of the main things things that we maybe attach ourselves to is just that that storyline we've seen a thousand times so it's so easy to immediately recognize those beats of like oh like she has a crush on her teacher and like he's like young and hot and we have like the hot school teacher thing like we've seen that in so many other shows it's like been done so it's like the most accessible plot line even though it's like uncreative and uninspired it was interesting for me because i i think that being your roommate being your friend um, you, I think that you typically frown upon those types of storylines. So it was interesting to see you kind of be like, wow, this is the only fucking entertaining thing to watch. I mean, I hate those plot lines typically because of shows like Riverdale, where it's like a random blip where he's just like fucking his music teacher and, um, Dawson's Creek where she like grooms him and totally gets away with it. And they just like never depict it accurately you know we've seen it on pretty little liars i think i'm so i'm currently watching a teacher on hulu me too which is the only (laughs) oh my god okay well we'll have to talk about it it's the only show where i have ever seen like accurately sort of like show you grooming and it's disturbing to me i mean it's a good show like i enjoy to watch it but I was had that in the back of my mind as I'm watching Swingtown, which is like the exact opposite contrasting plot line where we're like, she's 17, he's 24, it's summer school, and she's got all this agency and she's just like this smart, precocious, like teenage girl. And we're just supposed to believe that it's like totally normal for her to fall in love with her 24-year-old high school teacher. 
<laughs> and he he literally is like a super nice caring guy who like absolutely loves her and like isn't proving her at all and like it's just not how things happen in reality it makes for fun tv but it's just not real but also listening to two self-described intelligent people on this show like banter (laughs) me i was in agony well that's what i meant when i said it's insufferable it's my greatest fear and it's my greatest torment in media i also consider a philosophy major to be the most undesirable man on earth yeah right never explain anything to me please that's my job i understand like the professor thing of like oh it's sexy professor in college right um a high school philosophy teacher whatever a college you know a man with a master's degree in philosophy can pass me by he can miss me because I'm not interested in conversation. I did have a crush on my philosophy teacher. I think I talked about that on a previous episode, but said teacher is played. Oh, in college? So did I. Yeah. Said teacher is played by Michael Rady, Roddy, who, you know, I think a lot of people will recognize as Kostas. Kostas? Kostas, the Greek yeah, the delicious Greek man who is Alexis Bedell's love interest in the Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants 1 and 2. Um, but fun connection. So earlier, Grant Show, who plays Tom, sexy porn star, handlebar mustache, he was, Grant Show was in the original Melrose Place. And Michael, who plays hot young teacher Doug, is in the CW's reboot of Melrose Place that lasted for one season. Well, put it on the list because he's a hottie. Exactly. So we, you know, we've met Trina and Tom. We've met Bruce and Susan. And now it's time to meet the final couple who, despite dragging the show down for the first three episodes, I grew to have some sort of affection for later on. Um, I mean, Janet grew on me. Roger sat at like a solid three for me for the entire series. I just feel like those actors were being cheated because they were as much part of the show as any of the other couple. I feel like it was a pretty even split between the three couples and they never get to be on the promotional material. It's just sad to me. Um, Anyway, they're Janet and Roger. Janet is played by Miriam Shore, who I feel like is one of those actresses who has been in everything. Like she just has that face who's in everything. Uh, But she's most famous for being in Hedwig and the Angry Inch, as well as um, Younger, starring Sutton Foster and Hilary Duff. And Roger is played by Josh Hopkins, who I know from Cougar Town. Um, and he was also in Quantico, but I forgot about him. His facial expressions through this whole show made him look like one of those, like, teenagers that the police are able to con- coerce a confession out of because he's just not that bright and, like, puts away a man, like, an innocent man for life. Like, I hated looking at his face. He was pathetic and sad, but in a way that I found endearing. He's such a sad, sad puppy for the whole show. And I'm like, uh, look, I would feel bad for you, dude, but I just can't even, like, Janet is giving you everything. She is a fabulous wife and mother, and, like, you can't even muster up, like, an ounce of gratitude. Yeah. One thing we haven't talked about is how ugly I thought this show was. 
Well, I noted, like, it's in my notes. I wrote so much, so many notes, y'all. Like, I have a legal pad that was empty, and I filled 17 pages. Maybe 30% (laughs) of it is uh, plot-related, but I was writing down just the music that I recognized, and within, like, 15 minutes, we had Spirit in the Sky, we had Rita Coolidge, we had Golden Years by Bowie, Redbone, Come and Get Your Love, Steely Dan, and it made me wonder, one, it's definitely trying to be Boogie Nights, because there's a lot of needle drops in Boogie Nights, but also... I couldn't figure out if it's easier to license all this music to be like, hey, guys, you get it? It's the 70s. Because otherwise, the show looks like they got all the set dressing from, like, the disco section of a party city. On discount (laughs) clearance. So right before this, I had the pleasure of spending a night with Cornelia and watching um, Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, which is just, like, such a Technicolor dream of, like, fun, sex, drugs more sex and then to sit down and watch just the, like this ugly kind of sad show it was it was jarring for me i really liked the clothes in swingtown and the music in swingtown i liked certain elements of the set design and like a couple of the clubs that they went to were fun but part of what makes it so ugly is the like the color palette is really muted yeah and the camera work is boring and the whole thing just looks stale it kind of gets slightly better as it goes in the sense that they'll just have random scenes where they've put like a hazy filter over the for over the scene for no reason like when they're indoor in the house they'll just have it like be like dreamy yeah for absolutely no reason but for the most part it just looks really muted and like they turned the color like they just color corrected it really badly there's also no wide shots i felt very claustrophobic phobic dead giveaway that they've wasted the budget on on what tell me the music i guess i I would say music licensing which it drops off significantly after episode six i don't know if you noticed that but after like four episodes there's no music in this show (laughs) i don't know if that's Uh, after they got the plug pulled but i noticed gosh so Bruce and Susan are moving out of their current, out of their old neighborhood that that is later um, branded as the wrong side of the tracks, which I was like, what? Because like Janet and Roger's house looks really nice. So currently Bruce and Susan live next to their friends, Janet and Roger, but they're moving, you know, to a nicer area. And Janet is really acting like Susan is about to drop dead. Like she will never see this woman again now that they're not neighbors. And it's devastating for her. This is also when we see Bruce reveal himself to be controlling, annoying, whiny, and all in all undesirable because she's having a tender goodbye moment with her friend Janet. And Bruce is like, again, the car, like rushing her. And it's just like, she's saying goodbye to her friend. Like, yeah, her friend is being overdramatic, but just let her have this fucking moment. So Susan, you know, seeing how fucking needy Janet is, um, earlier, Bruce and, Bruce and Susan were invited to a party. They were invited to a party that night by Tom and Trina. So she's like, look, Janet, do you want to fucking come? At this party, Trina gives Susan a quaalude. Hey, can, I, uh, can I, before I get to the ludes, there's that exchange. <laughs> there's that exchange 
they get invited to the party and then Trina and Tom go back to their place and Tom's like, Ooh, Trina, you're up to something. And she's like, well, what do you, what do you want me to say? They seem nice. They're good looking. Are you interested in that? And Tom is like, I don't know. It seems like a tough sell. They look like real squares. And then Trina says, easy is boring. And that's when you know that they have a plan. Exactly. I mean, look, they want to have sex. I get it. I want them to have sex. So they show up to the party. Trina gives Susan a quaalude after Susan admits that she got knocked up and married young and isn't used to like this party lifestyle. In this scene, I was instantly jealous just because I am really bored at home. And, um, you know, I only read briefly about quaaludes. I wasn't that familiar with them. Um, I wrote down a whole bunch of other names they had for them in the 70s. Wait, I need to know. All right. Other names for quaaludes. Bandits. Disco Biscuits, Flamingos, Ludes, Randy Mandy's, Soper, Vitamin Q, and Wagon Wheels. So if anybody offers you any of those things, it's a Quaalude. How do you feel about Quaaludes? I've never done them. I'm not much into pill popping, to be quite honest. But, I mean, if it was offered, I'd probably take one. It looked really fun. And look, during this quarantine, I've been yearning and... The show just made me want Quaaludes. I'll fucking say it on the record. It's it's like a downer, though. What would I... If I took an upper, what, what would I do with all that energy? Dance. You know, a downer has a place in my life. An upper is just gonna remind me that I can't go anywhere or do anything. I'll just be bouncing off the walls. See, that's why hallucinogenics are the way to go. Out of all... <laughs> out of the three drug categories, uppers, downers, hallucinogenics. So... As the party is getting fun, um, we cut away, and this is one of the few notes I made of the kids, because um, after this point, I think I stopped taking notes on them, because I stopped caring. Um, But we cut away to Bruce and Susan's son, BJ, who is hanging out with Roger and Janet's son. I don't know his name. Probably stands for Bruce Jr. Jesus. That's what I know. Do we know what Janet and Roger's child Ricky. is? Ricky. Ricky is the worst actor in this show. He also <laughs> aged significantly somewhere yeah. in the Yeah, he did. <laughs> I, I actually noticed that. I, I noticed in the last episode, I was like, wait, he's kind of doing a better job. And also, is he 10 years older? Like, he's <laughs> taller and, like, his face shape changed. I'm, I'm happy for him. You know, everybody has to go through puberty at some point. Um, unfortunately, that doesn't make up for the fact that he just, like, is a poor actor. So BJ and Ricky are hanging out. At some point, they, like, find porno magazines. I don't know which episode it is. It doesn't matter at the end of the day. But I... I t- we really don't need to talk about their storyline at all. We could leave it completely out. Well, I, I just took note of this scene um, because they're hanging out, and then Ricky gets beat up for starting a sex rumor about a girl. They went to see The Omen at the theaters. That's when that <laughs> happened. I I had to write down all the 70s, like the weird throwaway references. Like somebody orders a Harvey. Well, Tom offers them like, what can I get you guys? A drink? How about a Harvey Wallbanger? I'm like, well, (laughs) cool. And then they also offer Chablis, which is like a very kooky old wine, I guess. Chablis. I just had to write all that down. And also Janet says something really funny at the swingers party, but I don't think we're there yet. Uh, What is it? Because I'm probably going to just blast through it. Well, because... I, I don't remember what character it is. It might have been Janet is like, because 
um oh no no janet is getting on trina's nerves and is like did you see where susan went she's like oh yeah they went in the basement and there's an orgy happening in the basement which means a man's face in the back of six women's heads nothing else right but janet gets like all frazzled and then when she runs into susan again she's like she threatens to hang herself when she goes home (laughs) (laughs) which um which is a reasonable reaction to getting left out of an orgy I get it, girl. It's depressing. So, like, when they walked into this party, it just made me think that if this was on HBO, somebody would have been dancing with their tits out. And I feel like I felt neglected of that. I felt the absence of that. I mean, it lacks a certain verisimilitude because I'm not seeing any exposed breasts. Literally. Um, but exactly, like you said, Trina sends Janet to the playroom. She sees an orgy, which... We never see this dungeon. It's so sad. What a missed opportunity. I wanted to see it. It's also very important to note that although that this show is about swinging and partner swapping and group sex, there's absolutely 0.00 homosexual activity or queerness of any kind there, there on the show. men dancing with each other at the club, but they're, they're just kind of like, oh, that's crazy. And then they didn't talk at to At the them. very end at the disco club, there's queer people at the club. Yeah. I just present. feel like... I was missing so much discussion. I was, so after I joined the swingers Reddit page, I then found open-minded swingers, which is where all of the bisexual men who are in couples talk about, you know, being bisexual men. And I was reading this excerpt the other day that was really, I just thought it was really funny and interesting because someone made a post and did, um, they, they like typed out MFM like male female male right for their like threesome or their swinging or whatever and then there was this entire argument on the reddit page about the difference between mfm and mmf like one implies bisexuality and the other doesn't and it's just like look this show is about swinging we get about two instances of swinging and in those instances i want details you know i want to know who's participating Who's penetrating who? How many times? Where? Who's watching? Were there toys involved? Who was the position? Like, what were the positions? Which man is bigger? What's the pace? Was it verbal? These are things that this show is not giving me. Were they playing Pink Floyd in the background? (laughs) How many people took how many lewds? Who called them wagon wheels? Exactly. Exactly. So Janet is outraged by, you know, seeing this orgy and demands the guy that (laughs) this guy that's in the middle of all these women's heads. He only has like mutton chops, like no other clothes. He says, why don't you kick off your shoes? Why don't you kick your shoes off mama and join the party? And then at this point, I'm like, oh, Janet's definitely going to kill herself when she goes home. She's so fucking ungrateful. If mutton chops invited me into an orgy, you know, it's like when, where, Yes, I'm here. What can I bring? The three sons. Um, yeah, so Janet <laughs> Janet demands that Bruce and Susan leave with her right this instant, but Bruce and Susan have already been approached by Tom and Trina for a little nightcap, and they're having a blast. So they decide to stay, and then we get implied group sex. But once again, we get no details. We don't know what the fuck happened. 
But Gary, Gary writes Dreamweavers playing. And as they're going upstairs, we fade transition to Janet vigorously scrubbing an un- an the oven. <laughs> because she feels so dirty from seeing an orgy that she has to clean her oven. Do you think that, like, that scrubbing was the pounding? This like- really gave that's all I needed in my imagination it was a metaphor it was a metaphor for sure so the most important thing to note really is that you know Roger and Janet are the uptight couple Trina and Tom are the established swingers and now they have just had sex with Susan and Bruce who are our kind of windows into the swinger culture and this is their very first time having any kind of group sex slash doing any kind of swinging yeah, and that's kind of the end of the pilot. And instantly, I felt a sense of dread, personally, because I knew I was settling into a show that was not going to give me anything that I wanted and was, in fact, going to give me everything that I hated in this world, i.e. children. <laughs> so, so do you guys have anything else to say about episode one? Only that at the end, Bruce and Susan can finally, I guess, do it again but just with themselves they're like wow i feel very sexually invigorated they're because they're like they're doing it as the episode ends but they're also like you can't even tell if anybody's inside anybody else because there's like their 2008 sears sheets are completely wrapped around (laughs) both of their bodies yeah i mean look the only way for me to know that it's sex is if they're in missionary and covered absolutely head to toe in a sears sheet Another thing to know was right before, you know, the foursome, you know, as Bruce and Susan were like seeing the, the, their house for the first time, he immediately got a hard on and wanted to bang. But Susan was not into it because um, he finishes too fast. So, oh, oh my yes. God, I forgot about that. <laughs> that was so crazy because they're at their own house. They're at their own house before the party. He keeps like chasing her around the house wanting to have sex with her and at this point samantha is squatting in their house so she has to like get out before she accidentally sees these people having sex but he's so excited to fuck his wife and she's like calm down oh my god slow down and then he's like eventually he's like girl what is your problem like why do you keep telling me to slow down and she's like well you just get like so into it and then like you're done before i'm into it and i'm like yes queen go off tell him tell him you need some foreplay I appreciated that she was like, look, you're way too enthusiastic. and I know you're going to finish in two minutes and that's not going to be fun for me. I loved that for Susan. Me too. Okay. So episode two, the most important thing to note about the opening is that it is one of the most beautiful scenes of the show. Very saturated. We see um, their beautiful orange kitchen, their beautiful orange drapes. The light is sparkling through the windows and then everybody wakes up because it was a dream. And we're back to those muted colors, those, you know, everything is just in a medium shot. It's disappointing as fuck. Ew. Sorry, I don't, I, I don't know if I'm going to cut you off. She has like a pie-motivated swingers nightmare. Soundtrack to Blue Swede, Hooked on a Feeling. Right. I had to write it down. Yes, she does. I mean, she's having nightmares because she's so disturbed, but also subtly aroused by what she saw because it was very scandalizing, very scandalous. So everybody wakes up in their own beds. Um, Susan tries to call Janet. Janet ignores her. 
um, Susan and Bruce are so fucking blown away at what they did. Oh my God. We fucking. Tell me what they did. They couple swapped. What, what did they do? They couple swapped. Bitch, I'm you were like, there. I'm pissed. I'm pissed. This show, I feel like, I mean, most TV shows have this habit of having like a cliffhanger episode and then immediately cutting ahead. And it's like, but I want to see the conversation. I want to see the dialogue. If season two of Love, Victor opens a week ahead, I'm pissed. Sorry. Continue. No, I got it. I get it. I get it. So Susan and Bruce are blown away by what they did, but they agree that it was just going to be a one-time thing. And thus ending the series. It's Swingtown. <laughs> Literally. The show is called Swingtown. And if they would have kept swinging... I promise you all of the marital problems that they have for the rest of the series really wouldn't have been that big of a fucking deal if they had just kept swinging like they both obviously wanted to. Do you know who doesn't have marital problems? The couple who swings. They kind of do, though. But not as But pale in comparison, yeah. So speaking of them, Tom is a pilot. And him and Trina are so in love. And they love swinging together. You know, they always do it together. They don't really like have sex with other people alone. They always do they share everything. They're so passionate. They're so in love. They never want to be apart. But Tom is a pilot and he's just been promoted. So he's going to start flying to Japan like every weekend. So at this point, um, you know, we see that Lori, the 17 year old rising senior in high school, you know, she's been taking this summer philosophy class and she does have vibes with her hot teacher, Doug. They also get along well. They they talk like after class. He gives her a B on her paper, um, even though she is probably the most interested in the topic of anyone in the class. But then he tells the class, you guys can get extra credit if you come to my friend's production of Waiting for, Go- Waiting for Godot. And if you write a thoughtful review of the play, I'll bump your letter grade up. So then we just kind of get the sense that he gave Lori this B as an obvious incentive to get her to come to this play. She's like the only student who goes. She's the only one that goes, even though she got a fucking B. So then Trina comes by Susan and Bruce's house for whatever reason. And this is the only scene that she ever has with Lori, the daughter, but she gives this like insane sensual look to Lori that is never explained. And for me, I'm thinking like, okay, maybe Trina sees something in Lori of herself. You know, she sees that Lori is becoming, beginning to become curious, you know? It was just a really bizarre moment that goes nowhere. It was unexplained, but it just was a weird acting choice. We also notice at this point, you know, Janet is avoiding Susan because she's so disturbed that Susan would want to party with these sinners. She does come by the house with Roger, her husband. But when they see that Trina and Tom are there, they're just like horrified and repulsed. And Janet feels so fucking like destroyed inside that Susan would like make another friend. And this is also the first time that we see that Susan and Roger Janet's husband have definite vibes. Definite vibes. I just vibes. feel like if Janet and Roger were having sex more frequently than on Fridays, every other Friday. 
oh my god it's every other friday that's what she says yeah no wonder this woman is i wrote that down so unhappy she's stressed he's stressed Susan mentions to the Deckers that, you know, Bruce is out at the Playboy Club with his coworkers. And Trina is like, well, why don't we go and surprise him? Because he's a stockbroker and he like hit big or however stockbrokering works. Because I don't know and I don't care to know. That scene happened and it's like, do I know anything? Like, what is what is happening? Yeah. So they decide to surprise Bruce at the Playboy Club. So... They all show up, you know, Tom, Trina, and Susan at the Playboy Club. Susan looks amazing. And this detail I did really like because Bruce is so happy to see her. Like, that's just to show sort of in contrast to the end of the season. He's not doing anything deviant. He's not doing anything he doesn't want her to see. In fact, he's at the Playboy Club. And when his wife walks in, he's nothing but delighted. He's like, oh, my God, my wife is here. That's so hot. That's so fun. Even though Bruce and Susan have decided to not, you know have another night of of swinging um she's you know after that night like just something changed you know she was suddenly alive and she wants to have fun you know she wants to go to the playboy club yeah and it's exciting to see her exploring new things and trying new things so the only thing that happens at the club is that um they meet another couple who are really really attractive their names are sylvia and brad Sylvia is an ex-Playboy bunny from the Playboy Club who's now a very high-powered and successful lawyer who works amongst, you know, mostly male lawyers. So she's she knows how to make it in a man's world. And her husband, Brad, is a sex psychologist. They're very fun, very sexy couple. They're very intense. Um, Sylvia has very strong opinions. And they're old friends of the Deckers. Brad is hot. Oh, Brad is very hot. Yeah, Brad is super hot and doesn't get like a whole lot of screen time. But one thing that we did note was really disappointing is that they all get up to dance at the Playboy Club. And it's like, oh my God, we get to have like a fun dancing montage. And immediately they cut to Britt Robertson, who is 14 years old and living in a tent in the woods because she can't stand to be with her mother, who just loves partying. And... um BJ shows up with Ricky to like bring her some supplies now that she's living in the woods and BJ very tactfully lets her know that her mother hasn't even noticed that she's gone. They don't still have Playboy clubs anymore, do they? It's like no longer a thing. The Playboy house is a thing. I think the mansion is still a thing. This show, despite, you know, being so dry and devoid of, of actual fun did just kind of, it, le- it left me yearning, you know? I'm suddenly just watching so many, like, shows and movies just about partying. And they're not making me happy. In fact, they're making me very sad. Sometimes you have to look for the party within. You're so fucking right. <laughs> I know that's not helpful. When we were allowed to party, we didn't notice all the partying in media. But now that we haven't partied in 10 months... It's like everybody on TV is disco dancing and doing quaaludes and I'm at home with a glass of water. Um, So the other little progress that's made in this episode is, of course, Lori goes to the play to get extra credit and also to be around her teacher that she obviously has a crush on. And um, she brings her boyfriend, who's a loser, 
and he complains about the play, even though she's sitting directly next to her teacher, who also, who's alone. I'm pretty sure it's he, oh no, he's there with a friend. Um, But his friend, like, is working on the play. So he's just, like, sitting in the audience alone with Lori and her boyfriend. And her boyfriend, like, leaves in the middle of the play after, like, harassing the performers. So Lori ends up finishing the play just with Mr. Stevens, her teacher, Doug Stevens, sitting next to him. We don't know his name is Doug at this point. He's just Mr. Stevens. And afterward, he introduces her to his friend, and her boyfriend shows back up. They get into a fight. She breaks up with her boyfriend. He storms away, and she's left with no ride. So, of course, Mr. Stevens has to drive her home. Cornelia, where did you stand on the Lori Doug arc? Were you into it? I mean, there's nothing about the show really to be into, right? It, it all kind of sucks, but... I mean, by the end of this, I wanted both of them in the ground. Okay. No. But, I mean, I I don't really fall hard on either side of the... Like, I'm not against teacher, teacher-student relationships. I think the the female student and the male... In media or in general? I mean, in general, <laughs> but in media... I mean, I don't like predatory behavior. I'm not here for that. But I think that in media, like, the young ingenue falling in love with her, like, philosophy professor is a little tired to me. Um, I wasn't really impressed. If anything, I always kind of feel badly for these characters who are, like, like the young women who are clearly very smart, and then they end up, like, just having to explore their sexuality with these like lugs like whoever logan the boyfriend is i just feel really bad because i'm like you're probably either like kind of gay or you deserve someone a bit like more respectful which i get why you go for the professor but it still just like bugs me that you don't have better outlets or at least safe outlets like they always kind of bum me out but the way that these characters dialogue was written was like driving me up the wall (laughs) Yeah, I mean, they're annoying. She also does straight up tell her boyfriend to his face that he's, like, boring and, like, not smart. He gave her an Aerosmith album. (laughs) Of course he's not smart. (laughs) But he says, you know, he's apparently good enough to get into her pants every night. So we know that, like, she's having sex with him. So we know that she's not, you know, virginal and untouched or whatever. Um, She's a modern woman who can choose to have sex. With a 24-year-old man who happens to teach at her high school over the summer. Um, It is important to note that he's not a full-time faculty. He was just teaching summer school. And he is a recent master's, you know, he's a recent graduate school graduate. Um, But for most of the 13 episodes, we really don't know how old he is. And, you know, he could be 30s. We find out later that he's only 24 and she's 17. But it's really, like, unclear for most of it. So I'm just kind of sitting there like, why is everyone acting like this is normal and not creepy and weird? The episode ends with Roger, I guess, thanking Janet for, like, being a nice wife. And she says that she feels like her whole life is falling apart because Susan has moved away. And that's episode two. I can see a version of the future in which I'm in a happy maybe open relationship and it's more devastating to me that you abby or you cornelia are moving away than any problems i could have with my boyfriend you know 
I get it. I get it, Janet. Friendship is so important. I mean, female female friendship is powerful. She also says later on, though, there's a line when it's like jumping ahead just a, a bit, but like it comes up that Janet might have to move to Cincinnati and she tells Susan, like, I just wanted to grow old together. It's like, oh, you and Roger will grow old together. It's like, no, I meant us, you, Janet and Susan. I'm like, that's the gayest thought of this whole series (laughs) to grow old and die with your best friend. I'm like, that's Janet. Janet's untapped, I think. I mean, everybody on this show, like, should have had queer thoughts, queer feelings and some bi curiosity, but they just refuse to give us what we want. I love it when you call me senorita. Okay. Um, Cornelia, is there anything about episode two that you wanted noted? Um, no, I think we covered it. Other than I did write down all of the, there was a lot of cooking in this episode. So I did write down what they were cooking, like what I could decipher. And that Trina smoked Virginia Slims is what I noticed. Are there any fun cooking should we do should we do a mini sode where we do some of the swing town cooking? I mean, if we, if this was gonna happen in one room, I was gonna make you pigs in a pickle. <laughs> but um, I just noticed that last episode that Janet made deviled eggs, served olives in a huge serving bowl, and that Susan was making like a tuna noodle casserole with fried onions on top. That sounds crazy, and I want it. Um, we've mentioned it before, but Cornelia hosts a really incredible funny unique podcast called love portions in which abby narrates on and everyone should listen to it thank you i love how you always slide in that it's unique (laughs) that makes me laugh i mean because i think it is it's a compliment i hope you know that thank you no i appreciate it so episode three of swing town um i don't really know how it starts but susan is pissed because the night before at the Playboy Club, Sylvia, the Playboy bunny turned lawyer, gave Bruce her number. And Susan is instantly upset. She's uptight and she forces everyone in the family to go to church, um, which no one wants to fucking do. Um, So relatable. So after church, Susan asks Janet to throw a housewarming party. Um, Susan has no intention of actually throwing a housewarming party, but it's the only way that she can get Janet to talk to her. She's winning Janet back by giving her a task. Exactly. By this point, um, I hate the show. And I'm okay saying that because the show kind of reels me back in a bit later. But at this point, I want to stop watching. I want to put on Buffy the Vampire Slayer. This was like a low point for me was episode three. At this party, you know, Janet, very type A, very... You know, if you're a friend's stan, you know, she's a Monica Geller type. She is wanting to have party games and shit. Um, But, you know, Trina's not into that. She is, in fact, the life of the party and introduces the game called Forfeit, which doesn't make any sense to me. But the rules are that if a woman drops a piece of bread into the fondue pot, she has to kiss a man who isn't her husband. I would be dropping pieces of bread left and right, baby. I liked this episode because there was rival fondue. Like, fondue made an appearance, so I was on board. It's your fondue pot, isn't it? It looks like yours, the one you have. It's, it's not the one that I have, but it, it, I did um, 
I did notice the model they had and I was like, ooh, if I find me one of those in a box on the street somewhere, it's coming home with me. Trina and Janet keep bickering at this housewarming party. So the only thing that Susan can do is tear off her wallpaper um, and take ownership of the party. And suddenly it's a really fun party because everyone starts tearing off the wallpaper and starts writing on the wall. This is actually kind of a fun idea. If I had a house and planned to wallpaper, I would throw a party and have everyone come over and write on my walls. It also happened at all the basements in Boston during the the punk rock shows. You just write on the walls. That's true. Do coke off the dryer. You know what? This actually is reminding me of a personal experience in which I met a guy in Boston who was in a band. His band's actually pretty good. I'm not going to plug them, but um, they do have like some moderate (laughs) success. And he lived in this gorgeous apartment. I think it was in Brighton. And he was so totally chill and about having us write on the walls in Sharpie. Um even though this was obviously like a very expensive rental, his bedroom, I will say in his defense was extremely tiny, but yes, I did go into the bedroom. No, I didn't get what I wanted. He was fresh out of the seventies with his look. He looked so much like Billy Crudup in almost famous, which at the time was really my type. Um, He was also like a short King, but with long hair and a mustache. And he wore a lot of like trench coats with fur lining and bell bottom pants So I was super duper into him. I went into his bedroom to like look at his stuff or whatever. There was drawings all over the wall. He like invited me to draw something on his wall. And I noticed that he had a watercolor painting of Sting. And I said, is that Sting? And he was like, yeah, oh my God. Like, you know who Sting is? Abby, you're not like other girls. Cornelia, do you have thoughts on the game forfeit? Not Really, I've never played, although Carolyn, my co-host of uh, of Love Portions, plays it with her family. I don't think the rules are you have to kiss someone that's not your husband. I think it's just that you have to like give somebody at the party a kiss. But um... I just don't understand. I feel like I mean, I I I think when we had fondue, that was maybe the second time in my life I've ever had fondue, and I did it. I never had a fear of dropping a piece of bread into the fondue pot. It just kind of seems like an adult spin the bottle, but if you're at a fondue party. I mean, when Cornelia and I had fondue earlier today, I kept dropping my strawberries in the fondue pot. I could not keep them on the skewer to save my life. Uh, How was it? Was it chocolate or cheese? It was chocolate. It was good. There's a cat in my ring. If if there's meows, it's, um, it's my Halloween decoration. It's my favorite girl, Bijou. So, yeah. So, Susan takes ownership of this party or whatever. Anyway, so, Lori and her teacher, Doug, are hanging out at the library because he's collecting books for, like, a prison literacy initiative of some kind. And she ends up staying at the library with him. And they read poetry and decide to sing some Bob Dylan. And it's really uncomfortable and cringy. Um, but the scene ends with her kissing him. This and this would have been my dream when I was 16 and watching it now. I hate it every second. After she kisses him, the scene literally ends. So, and it's not like he initiated. And then we never, 
like we don't see him react to the kiss it just cuts so it's like okay like did they have an awkward conversation after his student tried to kiss him like what happened after that that just kind of seems like important for us to know but apparently it wasn't important to these writers the song they kiss to is it ain't me babe by the way if anyone's curious yes and he does a really really bad impression of bob dylan that made me very uncomfortable at the party, Roger sees a moment between Bruce and, like, Sylvia or Trina. I don't quite remember. And then Bruce has to tell Roger about, you know, the night. The night that Bruce, Susan, Tom, and Trina, you know, had a foursome, question mark. Um, and Roger is really bothered. Uh, he instantly wants to go home. And to me... You know, I read this moment as he is just really bummed that he doesn't, he didn't get a chance to have sex with Susan. Uh, the moment that, that Roger saw was Trina cornering Bruce to ask how many women he'd been with in his life. And the answer is <laughs> two. With two. Trina being one, Susan being the other. Because it's also revealed earlier that Susan got pregnant the first time she had sex, which makes her one, I think, resentful of Bruce and two, like, caution city. Which made me feel really I mean, sad for her. We hate Bruce in this house and we love Susan in this house, so. I'm so indifferent about both um, of them. <laughs> Cornelia, we had to find something to care about. I guess. I care. I, I was we just learned- waiting. I'm like, I'm going to, I just ended up writing down all the songs I recognized and the food they were eating. So that really kept me going. After Roger is disgusted at this revelation, um, we cut to the kids. And I didn't write any plot points. I don't know what the fuck BJ and Britt Robertson and the other one were doing. But I just made a note that um, Abby says, holy shit, I hate children. So I just wanted that to be documented. Here's the thing. Here's my point, right? I don't actually hate children as they are the future of this planet, um, and we're leaving them nothing. But um, <laughs> my my question with this show is, right, this show is not a show that you're going to sit down and watch with your kids, right? It's about parents having group sex and swinging. So for the, like most of the time, right, you would put in adult storylines and children's storylines so that mom and dad can watch the show with their kids. But this show isn't really directed at like being a family show because it's about swinging. So why do I need a plot line about 14 year olds? Because I'm an adult and other adults watching the show. It's like, what do we want to see of this 14 year old boy? But Mike Kelly, I think when he was conceiving the show and again, back to the nostalgia pendulum, like it's for people who are their adult ages, but also if it's catering to people who grew up in the seventies, like maybe this is supposed to cater to like their younger selves. I guess. I mean, that would make sense if there was more like distinctly seventies aspects of like BJ's plotline. I mean, they're auctioning off penthouse magazines that felt authentic to what I understand. Yeah, and I guess <laughs> playing with walkie talkies and like radios. I mean, it's, it's, a, I think it's, a cheap way to do it and I don't think it's done particularly well but I also didn't grow up in that 70s I grew up in my own 70s it just feels like as adults we want a sleazy fun swingers show and they're giving us like weird interludes to and they're doing that poorly right but then they're giving us like a heartwarming like nostalgic children's content and it's like 
So you're giving me absolutely nothing that I asked for. Am I yelling? It feels like I'm losing my voice and I'm yelling. I think you're yelling. Well, you're very passionate about swinging. I just grew up believing in the Nicholas Sparks fantasy of like monogamy, true love and tragedy. I'm so sorry. I know. And then I just feel like it's only been recently that I've opened my eyes and it's like, no, I want to be a unicorn. You know, I want to swing. I guess I need a partner to do that with. But anyway, after the party, Susan tells Bruce that she wants them to be 100% open with each other from now on. And he's like, oh, what do you mean? And she's like, everything's on the table. And this is honestly the moment that fucking pissed me off, right? Because this is the moment where they're like, okay, we're going to try this like possibly quasi-open relationship swinging lifestyle. And we don't fucking get that. This is episode three. And the next time that they actually swing is like episode 10. But they do- It's outrageous. They do end the episode by- making a fully sheathed sex tape with the camera that was a housewarming gift from the Deckers. Oh my god, fucking in missionary, covered in sheets. It was pretty it's gross. disgusting. I mean, I blame Bruce for not embracing the whole honesty and open communication thing. Episodes four and five are arguably fun and good um, compared to the rest of the season. So episode four... Are we ready for me to jump in? Yeah. Did you notice that it was directed by Jamie Babbitt, who did But I'm a Cheerleader? No. This. Yeah. That's why it's good. Yeah. Well, there you go. So episode four starts with Tom and Trina. Um, you know, I'm sure they're already members of the Mile High Club, but this is them just re-upping their subscription service. They're having sex on Tom's final flight to Miami because, of course, he's gotten the promotion. He's going to be flying to Japan from now on. Now, Roger and Janet are supposed to go with Bruce and Susan to their cabin. But unfortunately, Roger discovered in the last episode that Bruce and Susan are swingers now. And he was very grossed out by that or jealous. And he no longer wants him and Janet to accompany Bruce and Susan to the cabin trip. So he pretends to be sick. Susan and Bruce immediately invite Trina and Tom, their new friends and sex buddies. The four of them go to the lake. It's very sexy and flirty. Susan and Bruce are like, you have to jump into the lake. Like it's the rule, your first time here. They have vibes, you know, Susan and Tom have vibes, Bruce and Trina have vibes, I'm into it, you know, let's do this wife swap. They're about to take a group shower. Yeah, they all come in from the lake, they're talking about how they want to take a hot shower, all the four of them together, and just as they're getting all, you know, ready to get into the shower together, Roger and Janet show up, because Janet was able to convince Roger to come. At the end of the day, the show is not going to give me anything fun, gay, and sexy, but it's like, I was on that couch watching them get ready to shower, and I was choosing to believe that Bruce and Tom were going to have a hot, sexy makeout sesh, and I'm, I'm okay living in that delusion, but it's like, to have that ripped away in favor of this boring-ass, uptight couple, it's sick. It's wrong, Mike Kelly. It's wrong. And I watched What If. I know. I guess What If also. It, never mind. 
whatever keep going I mean this was at the peak of just like me hating on Roger and Janet because I was just so tired of them taking up my screen time Janet's a real Nancy Reagan for the first half I'd say I just think the actress is really endearing and fun and she does a really good job of bringing humanity to an otherwise unlikable character I rooted for her and I did she did end up growing on me but at this point I was just hating her um Bruce apologizes to Tom because obviously they were all about to get laid and it got interrupted by these buzzkills but Tom responds whatever the party is that's the party I'm at I also wrote down that quote it's a great quote it's a great attitude I want to party with Tom I want to have that outlook you know 2022 that's how we're all feeling so Tom chops some firewood for Janet. And this is when we see Tom's very sensual flirty personality begin to affect Janet because of course he's flirting on her with her. Then, um, you know, Janet's also been working on her famous brownies, but while she's outside with Tom, Trina throws a little marijuana in the brownies. Thank God. Can I just say that that doesn't work that way? <laughs> the fact that she just put literal flour straight into the brownie. Well, you have to decarboxylate the THC or else they're not going to get high. So everything that took place afterwards uh, was a lie. So don't, don't, don't you like make it into a butter or something? Well, because you have to activate THC to a certain temperature that the oven isn't going to get high enough to. Yeah, interesting. You, I've, you can't just eat a clump of weed and get high. And that's what they were doing because they just literally put the flour straight in the brownie mix yeah (laughs) that's all (laughs) i love science yeah i i've just made weed butter and it takes a long time but it's a it's a skill that i'm glad that i i have the experience of learning they all come in to have dinner and janet and trina get into a verbal spar um it's very stressful for Susan to watch her old best friend and her new best friend fight. I don't remember what they were fighting about and I don't care. Um, In order to... (laughs) The amount of times on this podcast that we're kind of just like, it doesn't matter. It's, we don't fucking care. (laughs) So, well, there's other things I care about on this show. This is just not one of those moments. But Susan breaks up the fight by walking into the room and saying... Why doesn't everybody eat a pot brownie? They're really good. And Trina's like, pot brownie? And Susan's like, yeah, pot brownie. I'm going outside. And Roger, I need to talk to you. So Susan goes outside. Roger follows her outside where she confronts him about how apparently he knows about the swinging. She has like a nice heart to heart with him about how like she and Bruce aren't changing that much. And, you know, they're just exploring new things for their relationship. But, you know, she still really cares about being friends with Trina and Tom or Trina and Roger. And while she's outside chatting with Roger. Sorry, Roger teaches Susan how to skip stones, but he might as well be like finger banging her on the boat dock is, is like how she's responding to being taught how to skip stones. Um, Because Bruce has never fucking A, taught her how to skip stones and B, gotten her off. So... Do you think when she had group sex with Tom and Trina, that was her first group orgasm? Probably. Um, so. And I would credit Trina. I feel like Trina probably did something. Well, that's the but, thing is that she has vibes with Trina for the whole series where I'm like, when is she going to make out with Trina? And she just simply never does. 
she has seems to have no sexual chemistry with Tom, even though I guess in in within the realm of this show, it seems that the swing they're, they're just swapping like couple swapping rather than having like a group effort. I mean, they sort of like touch each other, but it's not like the girls are kissing each other and the boys are kissing each other. Like it's, but they, there's like a lot of, you know, mutual rubbing. So um, Janet decides to eat the pot brownie and she gets really crazy high, even though the pot brownie was made incorrectly. And she and Tom and Trina and Bruce all play Twister together and they have a lot of fun. And this is their first big bonding moment where you think maybe Janet and Trina will end up being friends because there's only two bedrooms. Susan suggests that the girls all sleep in one room and the boys all sleep in the other. We are then brutally robbed of a scene of all of the men cuddling together. I was outraged when I look I am okay with living with the fact that the show is not gay, right? Like these, these swinging men are not doing anything together. That's fucking fine. You can't even show me them just sleeping in bed together. You can't give me that, those scraps. They didn't have the budget for it. They didn't have the budget for it. (laughs) They didn't have enough to pay these straight men to lay next to a man in bed. So, um, of course, Susan makes the suggestion, but then after the girls fall asleep, she tiptoes out to the porch to cuddle with and have sex with her husband, Bruce, who we all hate. And that's the end of the episode. By this point, of course, Abby and I have have, have made our the, the baby steps into liking janet at the very least i am a fan of roger just because i i'm into that pathetic kind of house husband energy i mean janet is just kind of i want i want her to want more for herself and less of others if that makes sense yeah because i feel like she's looking for control in the wrong places but um, I don't know. None of these characters, uh, none of these characters really spoke to me. Like maybe um, Sylvia, the the lawyer, I was into her, but she's like a fleeting character for the most part. There's some scenes where um, Doug Stevens, the teacher, shows up at, because Lori invites him over for dinner at her house, and he shows up late, mm-hmm. but ends up staying because as... Lori pronounces it PBS is doing a film nor week. <laughs> and they watch Double Indemnity, but Lori is such a killjoy, she can't enjoy the movie because she's like, this is portraying women incorrectly. And I'm like, Ugh. yeah. That was a hilarious scene in which I'm like, she she was talking about how the femme fatale is like, maybe not like feminist or whatever. I don't even care what the hell she was saying. But it was just one of these things where she's not saying anything fun or interesting. And I just had to be I just had to wonder like, are are we as the audience in 2008 supposed to think that what Laurie is saying about femme fatales and film noir, is it supposed to be profound? I think I don't I think Laurie graded on me just because I saw myself and her having to have a some sort of intellectual opinion on everything. And I, and I didn't like right. her for it. 
I mean, I agree. I think what was profound about that scene was her inability to pronounce the word noir. <laughs> um, I guess it also is important to note that even after she kisses her teacher, he's like, he is says, you know, that's inappropriate. And I just apologize if I gave you any reason to think that like, that was something I wanted or that that was okay with me. And, you know, he says that they like need to talk and she's like, great, let's talk. But what she really means is come over to my house for dinner. Um, and then he shows up late, misses the dinner portion. And then she convinces him to sit on the couch next to her and watch a film noir marathon. Look, he has to fucking watch double indemnity. He like, doesn't have a TV at his place. I mean, look, they just have so much in common. They both like Bob Dylan. They both like Jimmy Carter and they both love film noir. Oh my God. First of all, so blessed to have two back-to-back guests who love Pretty Little Liars, so I can bring it up. By the time we finally see Doug's apartment, Cornelia, didn't you feel like this was kind of just like Ezra's apartment? I just felt like I was in a time warp and I was watching Lucy Hale, a fave on the show, and, you know, Ezra on Pretty Little Liars. Um, I have no memory of Ezra's apartment, but I, I did note that Mr. Stevens' apartment was gigantic. In a way that was kind of distracting. I mean, he had to have money to be able to get a master's degree in philosophy. That's a privileged, that's privileged behavior. Agreed. Guys, we haven't even talked about the fucking intro. So starting in episode two, we get a really fun intro sequence. That's a lot of found footage. We get a photo of Farrah Fawcett. We get... I don't think it's found footage. (laughs) At least not all of it is. No, most of it is meant to look like found footage, but it isn't. But there is some actual found footage in there. There's a really fun shot of just, like, what appears to be two people in jeans just, like, pounding their hips together, which I enjoy. Yeah. Um, And and the theme song is by Liz Fair, I believe, but it doesn't really... Who went to school with Meg Kelly. They went to high school together. She just... It doesn't really sound like a Liz Fair Fair to me. I mean, I guess because it's, like, 70s style. I think that that, the whatever, kind of like, get it on, get it on. I think that was sampled in Fun Style, which is her, like, travesty album. Because that, this is what she was doing in her career, was writing, like, the scores and theme songs to trash TV. Yeah. I mean, I'm a huge fan. I love her. Yeah, I want what's what's best for her. But this intro did make the show, I wrote this down, that this intro makes the show look like an after-school special about swinging and then I said oh gosh that's exactly what this show is with most after-school specials when you say like it's there's like that that warning that like that sense of danger but to me it just seems like the people who are doing it right i.e. Tom and Trina despite having their problems are mostly having fun and are arguably the most solid couple whereas the other two couples are kind of just like falling apart. I mean, I would just counter that by saying that it's watered down. It's not necessarily accurate. Not that it's fear mongering, but they do spend more time talking about their feelings than literally doing anything else. So episode five centers around a fundraiser that Trina is throwing for Harry Reams, the male porn star of the real-life pornographic film Deep Throat, about a woman, a 
Linda Lovelace, is that her name? Correct. Linda, who has a... She has a G-spot in her throat. Yeah, that's the that's the general plot of the... Well, the, do you want to talk about the film or do you want to talk about the episode? Or should we get... I want to talk about the film. Okay, well, I mean, I've seen Deep Throat. How is it? Uh, I wouldn't recommend it. I mean, you can watch it. It's just that this episode is about Harry Reams and I think that the real star and the real victim, therefore, is actually Linda Lovelace because I don't... I think she... There was just a whole arc where when it came out, she kind of was told to prop herself up as like, it was a sexually liberating experience. And she's since backtracked on it and was like, I mean, content warning about sexual assault. She does express that like her rape has become like a, a cultural landmark for male pleasure. And I, I, that bums me out to think about. Jesus. Well, I, I saw the Lovelace movie with Amanda Seyfried. I don't really remember anything from it. I didn't particularly like and it. Brody but... plays Harry Reams in that movie. Although, sorry, do you want to hear something really cool and fun about the crew members of Deep Throat? I do. Um, a Mr. Wes Craven was on the crew of Deep Throat, although his role has never been disclosed. That like is, the West Craven or a man named like West the Craven. West Craven. He's under a pseudonym on the credits. Like he's never said what he actually did, but like West Craven used to be a porn director before he was a horror director. Well, I need to see his porn. There's a part of me that has considered directing porn. Really? I mean, I think that's a lot more diverse now. Like it's the thing about Deep Throat is that it kind of kicked off like the way that I understand it. I'm by no means an expert, but it kind of kicked off this like it's chic to like a porno chic kind of thing. Like a lot of celebrities got in on it and it was kind of a like a hip question to ask people if they'd seen Deep Throat. Like I think Jackie O was asked in an interview if she'd seen it and I think she had, although that might not be accurate. But um, I do love the idea of Jackie O watching deep throat <laughs> but it was it's, it's like one of the it's still one of the highest grossing films of all time because it costs twenty five thousand dollars to make and grossed like 600 million did linda see any of it no like did harry see any of it like not really um apparently he got paid 250 dollars yeah that's it um but there is there are some like funny I don't, I mean, like, the whole thing is that this woman is like, I don't think I'm doing sex right because I don't like it. And she has this slutty friend and the big line, like, the slutty friend's getting eaten out at the beginning. And she says to the guy that's going down on her, like, do you mind if I smoke while you eat? <laughs> like, that's the, <laughs> that's really funny. And then she, and then she tells Linda, like, you should really see a doctor. So Harry Reams plays the doctor who diagnoses her with having her, clitoris in her throat um that's that's the you know the title of the the film but um yeah (laughs) well they bring up watergate in this in this episode as well and i was just like is there a connection well because the code name for the informant was deep throat right which despite having seen lovelace i like blocked out that movie and the historical that historical element so it's just like is deep throat like about it's like a porno version of watergate like what what's the anyway. no, no, it was before it. so 
So Trina throws a fundraiser for Harry Reams, the porn actor from Deep Throat. He needs legal aid because he's getting sued or something. Um, and Bruce doesn't want Susan to go, but throughout the episode, she starts to really develop her own opinions and she reads up on the case. She goes and sees the movie and she even invites Janet, big ass prude Janet to go with her to the party at the bowling alley. Bruce and Roger are talking and I thought this was really funny. Bruce is really pissed that Susan hasn't been cooking or picking him up from work and she's just like been developing her own opinions and that is not okay with Bruce which I thought was hysterical. Bruce is just honestly the weak fucking link. He's so repulsive in every way. He's unacceptable. He's foul even. Susan and Janet go to the fundraiser and Janet meets Harry and the actor portraying the real Harry Reams is really hot to me and really Mm -hmm. charming and Janet despite you know having an aversion to pornography and not wanting to associate with it meets him and takes a liking to him you know she even shakes his hand in the end they have a real connection and he likes her a lot also because Brent Robin Robertson's slutty mom tries to fuck him and he's like really turned off by that. But Janet, who doesn't even really understand who he is, he likes the non-attention. She speaks to him like a normal guy and just asks him like genuine questions about like why he wanted to do porn and stuff. He doesn't look like Remy Malik to me, but there's something about him that reminded me of like when Remy Malik was in Twilight Breaking Dawn Part 2. I don't know how to fully verbalize that experience. He but... looks like a Volturi member. Exactly. <laughs> um oh yes. Also know that while we're going through the following episodes, there is probably Britt Robertson slash BJ slash Ricky content that we're not covering because um, that's just that's just not the show that we signed up for. And also it's not important. They also disappear for several episodes because they're like, quote unquote, at camp. Those are my favorite episodes. <laughs> I just it's a noticeable difference. I feel like the writers were like, fuck, I don't want to write about spin the bottle again. Literally. So the episode ends with, you know, Bruce storming in and demanding that Susan leave with him. But she's like, you know what? No, Bruce. I have my own goddamn opinions. And I think that Harry deserves the same rights as everyone fucking else. And she probably has the hots for him, too. She's getting radicalized. They also play I Am Woman, the Helen Reddy song. I think as it closes out, which means that this was the feminism episode. Because it's all about Susan and Janet learning to support male porn stars against a totalitarian regime. Is there anything between um, Lori and Doug in episode five? I don't have specifics, but I did write in my notes the way Mr. Stevens and Lori speak to each other is my biggest fear. So I'm guessing they're just kind of like oh, that's really cool that you think that about Facult, but I have to disagree. But I also want to- Your biggest fear you. in terms of you being the Lori character or you being the Mr. Stevens character? I just know that if whatever they were talking about 
books, let's say, poetry even, I would think I was doing a really good job. But if I were to pass that conversation or see it as a fly on the wall, I would pass away from embarrassment. It just reminded me that in high school, I was like, if I memorize the entirety of Edgar Allan Poe's The Raven, people will have sex with me. Interesting. I never once tried to memorize, like, quotes from any sort of literature. So I always felt like, wait, am I doing it wrong when I would watch scenes like this? But I don't, I don't live with those regrets. I feel fine about not having memorized a single thing other than like Tiffany New York Pollard's monologue from Big Brother. Episode six opens with Tom and Trina at the airport. Trina is seeing him off to his first flight to Japan and they're just being fun and flirty. And while they're at the airport, she runs into Luke, who is her high school sweetheart, as he's getting off a plane. And he, he's an army hammer type. Yeah. He looks like someone who is really pissed that he doesn't have army hammer's career. I found him attractive. I can't really recall what he looks like. They run into this guy, Luke, who obviously like still has desires for Trina because she's very beautiful and she hasn't aged a day. And, um, he decides he's going to hang out with her for the weekend and keep her company while her husband is away in Japan. And, you know, that's a-okay. Susan is having a really hard time choosing wallpaper for their living room. (laughs) Oh, you heard it fucking right. In Swingtown, in the 2008 cbs gem that is swing town one of the biggest conflicts of episode six is what fucking wallpaper is susan gonna choose after ripping it off her walls two episodes ago the whole sort of theme of this episode was like the authentic self versus societal pressures because Lori is meant to give an oral report for her final in her philosophy class about just that you know using examples from the text as well as examples from her own life she's supposed to talk about the authentic self versus the pressures of society blah 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 so she tells her mom that she should pick a wallpaper that reflects her authentic self and that is really interesting to susan who has apparently never heard the phrase authentic self before And she shows, you know, her options to Bruce and says, you know, Lori told me that I should try and pick the wallpaper that reflects my authentic self. And Bruce, like, laughs confusedly and is like, your authentic self? Well, I have no idea who that is. What a devastating moment. It's one of those pieces of dialogue that as a writer myself, you're just like, okay, but wait but let's talk about it. Like, why isn't Susan then spiraling? If if your life partner is like, I have no idea who you are. What? I mean, I think that she should have left Bruce after episode four, but that's just me. I was so bored watching this episode. I started writing plot points that I assume they cut from the HBO edit. <laughs> and like, just things that I wish that I had seen in this show. Like... 
Okay, do you want me to, I'll just run run right through them. Please. Okay, so like, why don't we have a key party episode yet? Um, Lori and Mr. S should do mushrooms. Maybe Samantha will beat eight Tom Pates and being the first face on a milk carton. Um, Lori <laughs> should become a groupie. Maybe a pregnancy scare. We haven't talked about the pill yet. Um, it's the goddamn 70s, so we should do some child abduction stories. Maybe a John Wayne Gacy crossover episode. Drug overdoses. Children trapped in some freak weather accidents. Uh, put some goddamn gays in the mix. Satanic panic. The Steely Dan episode. I need an actually slutty teen party, please. And um, I could have kept going, and I, I guess I didn't, because then it says, at some point, Mr. S says, I'm not your teacher anymore, so we can bang now. Yes, I'll get there for sure. If we ever do a Patreon, that's a really funny idea of just like, what is the season that actually should have happened? Well, because the 70s are such a like, like the 60s were over because the 60s was all like free love and revolution that didn't really work. So then the 70s were like, turns out we should start paying attention to our kids because they're getting abducted left and right. People are doing drugs. People are murdering each other. There's serial killers running them up. Um, I think the tone got a lot more cynical and you wouldn't know it from this show. Yeah, 100%. I mean, the 70s are what thrust us into the conservative 80s. It's the truth. So at this point, it's just like so clear to us that Susan should leave Bruce and, you know, jump into bed with Roger, but she doesn't. Speaking of Roger. was I feel like it was around this time that I, I believe I, I like was cooking or something and you turned to me and said, are you so bored by the show that you would rather do dishes? And it's like, kind of. Oh yeah, because they go to a Country club benefit. I, and the I country club symbol looked like the Third Reich symbol to me. The cross. <laughs> Maybe I, just, I, like, I wasn't about to Google the Third Reich because I don't want that on my laptop, but, you know, really jerked me to reality a little bit. We didn't even take a single note about that plot line because it's, like, insipid, but I'll just say, like, Bruce basically forces Susan to join this, like, wives club of like wives from his work basically to make him look better to his boss and she hates it because it just does not like her at all but she recruits janet who really likes it and they go to like a charity auction and um i'm bored i'm so bored yeah that's like judy bloom books are edgier than this show so but the the only like main takeaway from that is that it's just like bruce forcing susan to do something that she's very clear that she doesn't want to do and it's like she got really involved in wanting to be a part of the, you know, fundraising for the legal defense of this porn star. And Bruce's response was like, oh, I guess that you should probably work with all these other board wives to like raise money for this children's hospital to make me look good. And she's like, I don't think that you get me at all. Um, so Roger is not doing well at work and Janet encourages him to ask for a raise so he does, and immediately gets laid off. <laughs> Roger, instead of telling his wife that he's been laid off, tells her that he successfully acquired a promotion, which is a bold-faced lie. He also allows her to make a $100 bid on uh, dinner at the country club, which he then has to go find Susan and retrieve the check. 
that Janet wrote because, of course, they can't afford it. Now, this is the first time that we have some secrets developing between Roger and Susan, which just kind of goes to show that, you know, he trusts Susan. He prefers talking to Susan than his own wife. And um, he tells Susan the truth about getting laid off, even though he can't tell Janet. So this brings them closer. Now, Tom comes back from his trip and sees that Trina's, you know, childhood boyfriend is there. And they decide to all have sex together. And in the middle of their three-way, Tom starts to feel insecure and leaves. And Trina follows him out and is like, babe, like, what's going on? I thought you wanted to, like, fuck me while my high school boyfriend fucks me too. And he's like, I just feel, like, left out because you guys have all this history between the two of you. And he was there for your childhood. And she just validates his feelings and, you know, makes him understand that like he's everything to her and that their marriage comes first and that she doesn't want this experience with Luke unless she can share it with him, which he really appreciates. This is, this is another moment of fucking rage because Luke is of course making the move on Trina and Trina's like, look, I am in an open marriage. And then we get the delicious line in which, you know, Tom is like, you know, if you want to sleep with my wife, that's cool, but we're a package deal. And it's like, okay. So I just feel like that line implies MMF as opposed to MFM. I would rather pass away than sleep with someone from high school with my spouse. I don't understand the appeal of this. I mean, if he looks like Army Hammer, that's the appeal. I mean, it is weird that she would have sex with her, like, first love, who she was with for four years, with her current husband. Like, I get why he would feel a little bit like, this isn't, like, someone random that we picked up at the club or, like, a friend we're swinging with. Like, this is someone that you have a true history with. Just kind of makes the whole experience more loaded. The only other thing to note about this episode, of course, is that Lori, ultimately, you know, she has to make her oral report about passion versus the pressures of society, the authentic self versus society. And she misses the, you know, the main point, which is to reference examples in her real life. And instead, she just sticks strictly to the philosophical texts and doesn't reference her real life at all. And she ends up you know, not doing a great job and Doug, you know, Mr. Stevens is disappointed. So she goes to see him after class and, um, oh, at this point also, it's already been revealed that she's been hanging out and has a crush on him and her ex-boyfriend has threatened to expose him to the school board, but then she was able to convince her ex-boyfriend to not expose him to the school board, so that's no longer a problem. (laughs) Um, Oh, so gosh. anyway, she goes to see Mr. Stevens after class slash Doug. And he's like, hey, like, how come you? This was her final. So, you know, school's out. And he's like, how come you didn't do the assignment? You didn't talk about your real life. And Lori says, it's because you're all I think about. And I couldn't exactly get up in front of the whole class and talk about how you're all I think about. And I dream about you every night and I just want to be with you. And, you know, that's the main thing that I'm struggling with, you know, with my authentic self, blah, 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 because I can't be with you because you're my teacher. And then Doug, who has been, you know, fighting it for weeks, for at least two to three weeks, um, is like, 
well, Lori, you know, I'm not your teacher anymore. And then they embrace and make out. Ugh. These people, these two, I feel like don't have any chemistry. Maybe that was just me, but I was like, nothing about it was attractive to me. For me, that for me, Lori is a character you can just kind of plop yourself into. Because for me, it was just like, oh, I'm having a relationship with Teacher Doug. It did kind of feel, I mean, to me, knowing that this came from the same people that did Six Feet Under, she did feel like a do-over of the of Claire from Six Feet Under, who is like the sister of the main family, who also had an affair with a teacher. <laughs> I understand. I mean, that trope is just so overdone. And I'm so fucking tired of it. I understand from a viewer's perspective, like as a teenage girl, right? It's like fun and sexy to like, see a plot point where you are having like a sort of affair with your school teacher like I understand that that's a fantasy I definitely get it from like a college professor point of view and certainly when I was in high school I definitely was like titillated by that kind of storyline as an adult now you know being someone who is Doug's age it makes me uncomfortable because I would consider it to be a moral transgression to be with a 17 year old but yeah i mean i didn't see a lot of chemistry between their characters i found her a little bit irritating so i thought it was kind of beautiful that he's like not irritated by her i love that you're taking the time to listen to today's episode but i would love it even more if you subscribed to dearly departed on your preferred listening platform and check out our instagram page while you're at it that's at dearly departed the pod Drop a comment, leave us a review, but most importantly, enjoy the rest of the show. So episode seven focuses on, you know, the struggles that plague an open marriage. So while in Japan, Trina finds out that Tom has slept with a stewardess and it ends up really affecting her. She's pissed. You know, even though this specific stewardess was on their list, she she's just not okay with it, you know, them being apart for so long. So Trina and Tom decide to become exclusive for a bit. You know, they, they want to revisit the rules. We never get to know what these rules are, which is really frustrating for me. Um, but... What can you do? What can you do with Mike Kelly and CBS in charge? So the only other thing happening in this episode is that it's a heat wave. And considering the fact that Roger was fired, he ends up spending the day with Susan. Um, And together they end up going to Tom and Trina's pool party, where we as an audience learn that Roger has a banging body. Um, he looks really fucking good in a swimsuit, specifically Tom's swimsuit. And, you know, him and Susan's sparks are palpable. It's it's clear. So the only other two things worth noting in this episode is that the kids are away at camp. So they're not fucking around. And that's really nice. And that Janet finds out from Roger's boss 
that he has been fired. So she, you know, confronts him at the end of the episode. And he just kind of apologizes and says, you know, it's hard to talk to her. You know, she's such a perfectionist. So that's all I've got for episode seven, honestly. No, I'm just going to say the only thing about episode seven is that we just, uh, we see Susan and Roger grow closer and we see that they have a special relationship and that they're sharing more lies together. And that's kind of it. The dynamic that was highlighted in this episode that like really wigged me out is that all these people's marriages seem to revolve around like keeping tabs on one another, which really stressed me out and made me think like, whatever version of marriage this is, is kind of a nightmare for me. The only version that I kind of can get behind is Trina and Tom, because obviously communication is incredibly important for the lifestyle that they have with the, with the open marriage. Like the communication is part of what keeps that strong. I just kept and thinking I just that like them the best, like the amount of times in this, uh, excuse me, the amount of times in this show that, one character was calling another to be like, hey, have you seen my husband and or wife? Huh, that's so weird. (laughs) He's supposed to not be where he isn't. That's crazy. I wonder if we're going to get a divorce now. And that kind of wore me out. I mean, I just think that everyone should get a divorce. I guess except for Tom and Trina, but... The only other thing to note about episode seven is that we met Melinda in episode six, Melinda is Bruce's hot coworker. She's like the only women, woman that works for his stock trading company. And she... You can't help but notice that she looks a lot like a young Susan. She looks exactly like Susan, yeah. but 10 years younger. Um, it's, it's the actress exact, just like Victoria in the, Twilight, the first Twilight movie. Before they recast her as Bryce Dallas Howard. Right. My my Victoria is Melinda. <laughs> uh, we stand Twilight on this. My Victoria is Bryce Dallas Howard. The thing is that... Period. She and Susan don't look similar in the face. They are just both pale white women. I think they, they look similar in the face. Or hair. You just can't help but wonder if it was intentional to, like, make make the 20%... Uh, I kept referring to Melinda's 20% in my notes. I don't know if you know this, like, supposed rule of thumb that when men cheat, it's because they've met somebody that represents 20% of what their wife isn't, you know? Ooh. Like, like at best, you're going to end up with somebody who is 80% of everything you want. So when some, So when a 20% shows up, you're like, oh, my God, this is everything I don't have, and I should go with this person. I feel like that's what Melinda is, just because she's young and... I guess knows about baseball. I mean, they connect over trading stocks and baseball. And Melinda, that's the foundation of life. Being characterized as this really like smart, strong-willed, independent woman takes any opportunity possible to talk shit on Susan. Yeah, it's weird. She like negs him to be like, "Are you actually happy though, Bruce?" Which I don't understand why she's interested in Bruce, but I don't understand. Kind of seems like. She just seems like she's young and is kind of like down to push buttons. I found Jack Davenport, who plays Bruce, there were parts of him that I found quasi alluring in Smash. 
before you know he becomes kind of a predator in season two really i guess he is a predator in the pilot but there's just nothing redeeming about him in swing town there's nothing about bruce that i like that i root for that i'm attracted by um he's just all around disgusting to me i agree um and then you know in episode seven he gets drinks with Melinda after work and she propositions him to come over and to her apartment and have sex with her. And it seems like he's really tempted, but ultimately he does say no. And that is just kind of like leads us into episode eight. Episode eight starts with another dream sequence where Susan is having a sexy dream about Roger. The amount of times they all said each other's names just made me realize how none of these people have sexy names. I mean, they have very 70s names, right? Susan, Roger, Bruce. Yeah, it was, it just kind of laid it out for me that I would never want to, like, scream out the name Roger and or Bruce in bed. The thing about the the dream sequence at the top of episode eight is that there's a zoom-in shot of Roger's crotch. He's, like, coming into the pool, so it's supposed to be kind of, like, what should have happened at that pool party in the last episode. But it's, like... There's, this is this is CBS, right? They can't show anything explicit. There's no bulge. There's nothing remotely sexy. It's just like a weird zoom in on a crotch of a pair of like kind of unflattering swim trunks. And it's so bizarre. It's like, what, what, what am I supposed to be looking at? The swim trunks come into play later in the show, in the plot. I feel like you're supposed to recognize the pattern. Of it's the just trunks. important, I guess, that we remember the pattern of these trunks. So... The, the episode centers around Trina's annual puzzle-rama, which is a sort of, like, um, scavenger hunt game that she invented where it's all the whole neighborhood gets involved because I guess the whole neighborhood is swingers. And she comes up with clues that are, like, specific to each person. And that leads you to that person's house in which you find a chip. And, you know, whatever pairs find the most chips win. They play up this whole puzzle-rama thing like it's all about revealing people's secrets and that it's going to be really scandalous. And it ultimately is none of those things. <laughs> um, yeah, these riddles are The ass. riddles are not scandalous and they don't really reveal anything. Um, but one thing to note is that Janet, of course, finds swim trunks at her house and brings them to Susan and is like, oh, I found these swim trunks. They must be Bruce's from the cabin. But of course, Susan knows those are the swim trunks that Roger borrowed when he was at Trina and Tom's pool party. So she subtly returns the swim trunks to Trina and just lets Trina know that, you know, Janet doesn't know that he was at the party. And in fact, Janet doesn't even know he's been laid off. And she would be really upset if she found out that he had instead of going to work, spent his day partying with a bunch of swingers. So, like, let's not tell her. Also, Heaven Must Be Missing an Angel is playing during the introduction of the party, which is one of my favorite songs. Did that make the episode more bearable? No, I wish it was a real key party. (laughs) I was like, hell yeah, this is the key party. And I was like, oh, damn it. It's a scavenger hunt, which they call truth or dare on a roller coaster. But, like... There was absolutely no truthing or daring. So just like there, I I was hoping it was going to be truth or dare, but no. So 
Trina also makes the pairs, which of course you don't get to play Puzzle Rama with your own partner. You have to get paired up with someone random. Trina is of course in control of everything. She pairs up Roger with Susan because she sees that they have vibes and she wants them to get it out of their system, you know, to just cut to the chase. And then Bruce ends up getting paired up with Melinda. That's right. His work crush shows up at this party and they end up get pair- getting paired up together. During Puzzle Rama, Susan has a really good time with Roger. They go to the grocery store to find one of their puzzle pieces and they run into Lori, her daughter, who is campaigning for Jimmy Carter outside of the grocery store with Doug Stevens, whom she introduces as Mr. Stevens, her high school teacher. If you want to get away with dating this guy, why are you being honest with your mom about the fact that he was your high school teacher? Like, that's where I'm like, girl, you're not playing this game right. Yeah, I feel like Lori kind of gets a pass for being as independent as she is because she gets good grades. At least that was a note I wrote for the last episode because Susan, like, makes a point to say, like, oh, your report card came. Good job. She's like, cool. I'm not going to be home for two days. She's like, I love that. My very smart daughter (laughs) who gets all A's can be completely off my radar. I mean, I I have to pick out wallpaper. I appreciate that she supports Lori doing her own thing and being her own woman. I just think it's interesting that Lori feels so emboldened that she can, like, be hanging out with her teacher outside of school and not have that be weird. Her mom is like, oh, I didn't realize that, you know, campaigning for Jimmy Carter was, like, a school thing. And Doug is like, oh, well, it's not. It's just, like, you know, we both support Jimmy Carter and we're both just wanting to campaign for him. So um, that's kind of all we get of Doug and oh another thing to know right about Doug and Lori is that they haven't had sex yet. I think in the previous episode episode 7 Lori wants to have sex with Doug because they like go to the beach together and she like meets his friends. She wants to have sex with him but he wants to take things slow. So they haven't had sex yet which is cool. Um But she says, whoever gets the most signatures on this, like, petition for Jimmy Carter, um, whoever gets the most signatures gets final say on what we do for the rest of the day. Basically, she knows that she's going to get the most signatures, and that means that she gets to tell him that they have to have sex after they're done. So did you notice that this episode is filmed like an episode of The Office? Like, there was a lot of manual zoom-in on people's expressions. I didn't notice... I noticed manual zoom-ins. One thing we haven't talked about is all the fun transitions on the show. I Just, just this episode specifically stood out as com- shot completely differently from everything else, and I didn't really bother to look up if there was a reason for that. But, like, the whole... This... Like, all these episodes take place as some sort of, like, demented neighborhood get-together in various forms, and this is the one that kind of had the most action to it. I don't know. I was like, this is... (laughs) I thought it was arguably a pretty fun episode. Um, Bruce and Melinda have to get a chip 
or a puzzle piece at uh, a porno magazine stand and they end up getting really horny and they openly make out very passionately in public. Um, Tom spots them, but he protects them from being witnessed by Janet, which is very kind of him. Um, then, you know, at the very end of Puzzle Rama, um, Janet and Tom win. And um, it's also important to note that Susan knows that there's a chip in her room, but because she's paired up with Roger, she doesn't want to go to her bedroom. She doesn't want to take him to her bedroom. You know, she's setting boundaries. She's being appropriate. Um, so at the very end of the episode- I just like, sorry to interrupt again. No, you go. I, I just like how, considering how Trina paired everybody up, she's a quite the trifler and I'm kind of here for it. Oh, it's the like best the way part. She's met, the way she's meddling with everybody. Her meddling with married people, trying to get them to sleep with each other is the main source of pleasure that I have on this show. Because it doesn't seem that Trina has any sort of job or like thing to do all day. Cause she, I think the amount of times she's shown either diving into the pool or like sensually climbing out of the pool. I, it would seem that that was her job. She spends all day swimming in the pool or going for runs or she's also really into photography as a hobby but later on I think it's late like season like episode 12 um Tom makes a reference to their money being her money and it kind of seems like maybe she inherited a lot of money and she's the reason why they're rich um Maybe. that was like a throwaway line but it it i did bump on it because it seemed very much like he was making a point of like i mean because they were they're gonna make an investment and he's like well it's your money and she says well honey like you know what's mine is yours and that was where i was like oh so she's old money she just like has cash and that's why she doesn't have to work so um anyway the only other thing we know about her is that she used to be a flight attendant which is how she and tom met so Janet goes in to get the final puzzle piece, which is in Trina's bedroom, where she accidentally bumps open a drawer and a bunch of Trina's photography falls out. She's very passionate about photography. And in the pile of photography, she doesn't notice the sensual picture of Susan and Roger at the pool gazing into each other's eyes. However, she does notice the full body shot of a half-naked Roger wearing tom's swim trunks so she comes storming out and she's like why do you have a half naked photo of my husband in your drawer why are you trying to seduce my husband and trina is like babe i don't want your husband you can keep him sis like i'm not interested and so it's time for everybody to come clean roger comes clean about how he actually lost his job and he's been lying about it and he also admits that he told susan first so that's the big reveal of this episode not that he lost his job but that he confided in susan before confiding in her that's the big deal at the end of this episode but laurie does go back to mr stevens a very big apartment and they i think they do they do have sex it would seem this this is when they consummate their relationship why are we having sex with kids doug I just like oh we're like why aren't we bumping on the fact that Doug is having sex with a seventeen year old like she's underage he's so serious about how we have to wait until you're done with the class so I'm not going to be your teacher and then we can have sex instead of maybe you should wait until you're eighteen 
She's a mature young lady who can make her own decisions. That's what he says. Right, right. Episode nine, we have Bruce telling Susan about his kiss with Melinda. And sure, she's pissed, but ultimately Susan decides that it's a good idea for her and Bruce to join Trina and Tom at the Pendulum, which is a sex club. Trina ends up smoothing things over with Janet, who is insecure about her relationship. You know, as we learned, her husband confided in Susan first. So Trina encourages her to be more spontaneous, you know, be that girl who did a pop brownie, you know, be that girl who's like friends with a porn star. So Janet and Roger decide to join them at the club. At said club, Susan... And Bruce meet up with Sylvia and Brad. She's the lawyer. He's a sex psychologist. And Susan's feeling frisky, you know, even though she's like pissed about this whole Melinda situation. She's like, look, let's have fucking fun. So do they do quaaludes? No, not this episode. So they bring Sylvia and Brad home. And unfortunately, at the exact same time, Doug and Lori are at their house watching a presidential event of some sort. It's the Republican sort of National Convention. The Republican National Convention. Which I guess is a turn on for them because they're also like heavy petting and watching like, who is it, Ford well, or something? Doug gets really turned on because he finds out that Lori knows the name of the president of France. And that's really hot to him. So they're getting frisky. They hear the door opening. They have to hide. And then for the rest of the night, they have to eavesdrop on, you know, Lori's parents who are swingers. And it's really a shame because it's like, oh my God, we're finally getting another moment of swinging from these two. We've been fucking waiting since episode one. And yet we have this weird comical element of their daughter eavesdropping. This is fucking bullshit. So... Anyway, Bruce and Sylvia, like, go off for a bit, and it turns out that Brad isn't really into, like, the sex part of swinging. He only likes to watch. So Susan's bummed out, but the episode wraps up with Lori and Doug popping out from their hiding spot, you know, the the parents realizing that their daughter is banging her teacher, and it's like, you know what, everyone get the fuck out of this house. And that really sums up episode nine. But also we get more Sylvia backstory because she tells Bruce, cause she's like, Ooh, put on music and it's crimson and clover is on the radio or whatever. And she's like, Oh yeah. I used to take acid to this at the, in San Francisco or whatever. And um, Bruce thinks that's hilarious. And they're like, Oh, nice. We're actually going to swap. And then instead Brad says, it's less like I'm going to watch and more like I'm going to make an omelet while you guys have sex. Which is like, okay, what the fuck is Susan supposed to do? Make the bacon? Like, I just think it was a really strange censorship move. Right. <laughs> Be like, it's still gross if he just likes to watch, so we'll have him cooking eggs. CBS being like, okay, fine, they can finally swing, but like, actually, but then no. I think it's how about this? It's creative. I'll like give it that, I guess. But then ultimately, they don't even get to have any sex because they catch Lori and Doug. Because Bruce goes full Republican and, like, gets really mad at, like, Lori and the the guy, the teacher. Doug. (laughs) Also, the Pendulum Club, I just wrote it in my notes that it looked kind of like a cross between a Medieval Times and the Star Wars Cantina. 
I've never been to a medieval times, but I have been to like a like a Sherlock Holmes dinner theater situation. It just didn't look like a swingers club and Susan was dressed like an old bridesmaid. Fair. But I feel like Susan does kind of look cute sometimes. I like the hair. I like how like they at least had the budget to feather everybody's hair. Right. Well, plus um, Janet and Roger come along to the pendulum. Yeah, they kind of do do okay at the pendulum club. Like they don't they they handle it fully swap. Yeah, they hold their own. Yeah, and Janet looks really beautiful. Janet, Janet, at the end of the episode when they kind of like go back to the Decker's house, Janet is like, "So, do you want to have sex with that unicorn?" Um, and Roger's like, no, I want to go home with you. So it's this like sweet moment, you know, where Roger doesn't, I mean, the only person he wants to have sex with really is Susan. And maybe his wife, you know, on every other Friday. Right. So episode 10, um, is kind of like Bruce being on one because, you know, he's very, he's like, what has happened to our family? Because, you know, he caught his daughter with an older man. And also him and his wife are swinging. That's crazy. And also they have a son who doesn't matter to them. Um, (laughs) So he decides to drag the family to the cabin. You know, we're familiar with the cabin at this point. Lori doesn't want to go because she wants to go to a concert with Doug. A Jackson Brown. Jackson Brown. And it's very important to her to go to this Jackson Brown concert with Doug. But Bruce is like, no, you're coming to the cabin. And so she goes to like appease him or whatever. Janet and Roger go to therapy to help him through his rut because Janet believes that he is depressed because he chose to go to Susan instead of going to her. Which I understand from her perspective, but um, the therapist, you know, sort of rightly is like, well, maybe you also have some problems that we should talk about. You know, maybe we should do this as like a couples therapy. And Janet absolutely does not want to be therapized. She wants to have the focus be on Roger because Roger betrayed her. And she doesn't want to talk about any of her problems because in her opinion, she has no problems. I mean, she's a perfect woman if I've ever seen one. Right. So cut back to the... Also, the therapist is Finn Hudson's mom from Glee. Shut the fuck up. Yeah, did you not recognize her? I don't know what that actress's name is, but I was like, oh my god, Mrs. Hudson's here. She was good. She had a very therapist energy. I think TV therapists are hit or miss, but... Also, I don't know at what point it happens, because once again, like, we're not really taking notes on the tweens, on what BJ, Britt Robertson, and Ricky are doing. But I feel like it was in one of these episodes where there's a spin the bottle game, and Britt Robertson has to go into the closet with Ricky. And Ricky's really pissed because Britt Robertson and BJ are getting close. But then Britt Robertson has this line where it's like, I know how you feel about him. And I was like, wait, is little Ricky like... A homosexual um it turns out not to be the case but it just turns out that he is really fucking needy and territorial like his mother <laughs> literally Janet, they're both but... i mean they both have the major plot point being like them being jealous that their best friend has made a new friend that isn't them but i was really excited for a second that like maybe ricky was just like a mess because he's dealing with his inner demons you know struggling to accept himself 
could be it. That's what happened to me, I feel like. Were you mean to people? Did you spread rumors? Did you punch someone in the face? Uh, no, I just, I don't understand the the draw of having a, a loving and supportive relationship, but that's because I'm immature. I see. <laughs> so it's clear that everybody in Bruce's family hates him, and I understand why. Lori decides to run away from the cabin and hitchhike to go find Doug so that she can go to this concert with him. It turns out I'm in this episode. Do you see yourself as the old woman in the car? Yeah, I was like, oh, cool. This is the representation I needed. Lori hitchhikes with this elderly woman who is in everything. I've seen this elderly woman in so many other shows. I can just tell she's she is the old woman. Um, (laughs) it's clear that they also like picked this woman because it's like okay we don't want to be worried about Lori's safety you know we don't want it to be like an old gross man picking her up because we just don't have time for that but this was also the part where I'm like we could have had an edgy 70s storyline where like Lori maybe goes missing or is like ceases to be on the show for gruesome reasons but I understand why that is not meant to be Instead, she just gets some sage wisdom from this old woman who tells her not to focus on forever. You know, she's been married three or four times and she just suggests that you love hard and you don't focus on it lasting forever. You just like, you know, let it be beautiful while it lasts. Men are like light bulbs, keep screwing till one works and then wear it out is what she says. Genius. That's how I'm going to live my life from now on. So Lori makes it more than halfway back to Chicago from the cabin. I think their cabin is like in Wisconsin. Yeah, I guess they're they're really not like Carolyn lives in Chicago but goes up to Wisconsin or like has a roommate from Wisconsin. Like they're very close. It's like an hour and a half. So she hitchhikes more than halfway and then calls Doug and Doug's gonna come pick her up and take her to the concert. This is cute because he has like a full on party happening at his house, but he's like going to go drive 45 minutes to pick up his teenage girlfriend. Um, But instead, uh, Susan and Bruce realize, you know, that their daughter is missing. So they go through the yellow pages or whatever and find Doug Stevens and call him on the phone. And they're like, hi, this is Lori's mother. And he immediately tells them where Lori is because, you know, he's not a predator. And he's like, well, Lori's at this cafe. I was going to go pick her up and bring her to this concert, but I understand why you're worried. And this is where she is, blah, blah, blah. So all of them show up at the cafe. Um, I took note that they do leave their son BJ in the woods with a BB gun and his unhinged friend. (laughs) They do get into a fist fight. Um, So way to go, Susan and Bruce. But, um, it was the 70s. That was childcare. Uh, look, I get it. And Lori needs them right now. So Susan and Bruce show up at the diner. And Doug also shows up. And they decide to sit down and have, you know, some food together, talk about what's going on, and reiterate that they're, you know, forbidding, forbidding Lori from ditching them to go to this concert. This is where we find out that Doug is 24. At this, Because earlier to this, I thought he was maybe in his 30s. So now I find out he's 24. It doesn't really change a whole lot for me. But, like, 
they want it to clearly they want this to be like a big reveal of like oh he's totally age appropriate which he's not but okay um and they also point out that you know they didn't start dating until summer school was over but Lori is a junior like she still has one more year of high school she's not a high school graduate there's a huge difference but okay she has all her credits because she's so precocious so she she does in fact have enough credits to graduate but she does have to do one more year anyway so this is when it just becomes kind of clear to susan that doug really cares about Lori, and he thinks that she's brilliant and wonderful and so capable of making her own decisions um and ultimately they allow her to go to the concert so she gets in his convertible and they drive away to go to this concert together even bruce ends up allowing it to happen and he even gives her some cash in case of emergencies. There's this weird exchange between Lori and Susan where Lori has to like, I don't know, size up that she's wise for her age or something. Cause she says, you know, mom, like life is short. We should really choose to be happy now. And Susan's rebuttal is yeah, but sometimes life is really long. And Lori's like, that's my point. And I couldn't tell if the acting was bad or if this writing is garbage. Both. All throughout the series, Lori is always making these kind of like little comments suggesting that, you know, her mom isn't happy in the relationship. And she's just always like kind of lightly encouraging her mom to like do her own thing and be a bit more free. It just kind of bums me out because like Susan always seems so gracious about Lori's decisions when it comes to dating, which like I... I think she should be supportive, but knowing what I know about Susan and that she's only ever been with Bruce and she's only ever been like knocked up at 17 and then married, I feel like I don't really trust her worldview as much because I don't think it's what Lori is up against. I mean, the thing about Susan is that she's so gracious with everybody for the whole show. She is so open-minded about, you know, trying the swinging thing. She's so gracious with Janet when Janet is being the world's clingiest friend. She's even gracious with her straying husband who's controlling and annoying. She's just very much just, she's just lovely, good-natured, but she's also kind of just like letting life happen to her instead of taking control. Yeah, there's a scene, I think it was the last episode, whenever it is that she finds out that Bruce, like, low-key cheated on her, and you think she's going to get angry, and then she's just kind of like, let's lean into this and see, like, where our feelings will go, which I I can admire, but it also felt like the actress just didn't know how to play angry. Well, it's outrageous to me, because at this point, we have two episodes left, and there's been more cheating than there's been swinging, and it's like... Bruce and fucking Susan have agreed to try being open. And it's like, rather than just being like, hey, Susan, I feel like I maybe have the hots for my coworker, Melinda, and I want to kiss her. Like, he just keeps it a secret. And it's like, Susan probably would have been like, I don't know how I feel about that. But you know what? We're trying this. Go for it. I'm like, kind of want to fuck Roger. Like, what the hell? They just aren't ready for the open communication that they say that they want. You know, you could talk a big game about open communication, but then you have to actually do the communicating. And that seems to be a problem for them. I guess because, I don't know, because I've never been like granted monogamy in any of my relationships for like one reason or another. And I'm the kind of damage where it's never really 
bothered me, but that's not what I want to sh- see on the show that's meant to like regale me with the hot goss and the, the juicy turns and twists and whatever. <laughs> I just want to know what the swingers page likes about this show. Yeah, I, I can de- actually, I got a guy that had, he didn't work on the show, but he worked for CBS. So like, he's like, if anybody wants the chair backings to like the director's chairs, I have them. Cause I got them like when they were like taking down the sets. And I thought about it, but he said, like, this show is really hard to make just because of its, like, time, like, time period. And it was hard to find uh, things that would match the the era. But anyway, <laughs> I bet you could still message that guy for the chair back. I just feel like if it was endorsed by actual swingers, it has to have some kind of value. And, like, I want to know more about that. So the last like thing to note about this episode is that just that like Trina very much knows about Roger's feelings for Susan. It's very clear to her because um, Roger and Janet invite Trina and Tom over for dinner at their house. So they have a little dinner with them and Trina does pull Roger aside and, you know, suggest to him that she knows that he's unhappy and just like tells him that he should like follow his heart or whatever. And then her and Tom get so brutally bored that they have to cut out early and reopen their marriage that they had recently closed to have sex with some Italians. <laughs> Tom says to Trina, cause I had to write it down. He said, how can an evening be freaky and boring? Literally. I also know that when, Tom and Trina go and reopen their marriage because they're so bored. It's the first time that we see black actors on this show. It took 11, it took 10 episodes, but we got there. You know, good, proud of you, CBS. You're really doing the fucking work. Do they have lines? Of course they don't. Not in that episode, but I think there's a, the woman gets an episode, gets like a line two episodes later. I don't. They, they appear in the rest of the season, like, as, like, background characters at parties, basically. Like, we see them the morning after, and then they're, like, at the clam bake or whatever. Yeah, this show is really testing my enjoyment of, like, kitchen sink dramas, because usually I can tolerate a lot of this, like, very suburban talking out feelings. Not a lot has to happen, but if the writing's good, like I'm there for it. And the show is making me feel like maybe I've been wrong about that. Well, Desperate Housewives just like proves that suburbia can be really delicious and fun. And like, I mean, I think the issue with this show is that we're not getting what we felt we were promised by the title of Swingtown. Episode 11 opens with Roger verbalizing something that we have already known and that it's that he's in love with Susan. He tells his therapist. Um, We cut to Tom and Trina who are hanging out with their friend and he asks them if they want to invest in his disco. Um, They're not really into it at first, but they're like, you know what? We'll fucking check it the fuck out. So side B plots include Doug teaching Lori how to drive and it being kind of sensual. He's wearing really short shorts and I would like to, you know, just hang out between his legs. And the tweens, you know, Britt Robertson, Ricky, 
BJ. They go on a double date or something. It doesn't matter. So in this episode, because Roger has lost his job, Janet decides to get a temp job at a newspaper. And she seems to kind of be enjoying it, but also seems to double down on Roger and is kind of like, so can you stop being useless and fucking figure out what you want to do with your life? Which is like, girl, I thought you were going to support him no matter what. I mean, it's if he wants to be Mr. Mom and like have, you know, her be the one who's working, that's totally chill. He's just like bad at cooking and bad at shopping and bad at homemaking and also doesn't seem to want to do it. Right. There's that. So... Tom and Susan, Tom and Trina and Susan and Bruce end up going to the disco and it looks super fun and they pop some quaaludes and they go back to Casa del Decker for a foursome in the Finally pool. more swinging in episode 11. This, finally, yeah. Um, and it's just kind of like Tom making out with Susan whose back is to Trina while Trina makes out with Bruce um it looks really kind of not as exciting as I want it to and um we move on from that and the episode ends with this big climactic moment of Roger kissing Susan and rather than having you know a fun dialogue exchange the episode ends and we get nothing Roger, like, shows up at Susan's house. Oh, no, what it is is that Susan is helping Roger cook dinner, right? That's the later. That's, like, in the middle of the episode. He tries to tell her then, but then he has to go back later. It's a lot of, like, I'm trying to tell you something, but someone interrupts or a scene cuts away. Do you want to hear about uh, what distracted me this entire episode? Please. (laughs) Okay, so there's that fight. Not fight. But, like, Susan fakes the orgasm and somehow Bruce, like, knows about it. That's, like, the opening of the show or something. That annoyed me. But, like, in the morning, Lori is having breakfast at the, like, breakfast bar. And Bruce is saying, like, I'm going to teach you how to drive or whatever. On, On the counter, very strategically positioned, was a box of what I thought was either crackers or cereal. And they were called Freakies. Did you notice this? No, because, Cornelia, I wasn't looking for the details in the show. I was actively looking away and kind of just letting the time pass by. It felt so propped up that I was like, I've never heard of this. I'm going to Google it. So it turns out that Freakies was a cereal that started in 1973 by the Ralston Food Company because they wanted to break into the cold cereal market. But this is kind of a difficult thing to do in the 70s because like, you know, high mortality rate of new products. So this copywriter named Jackie End was like, I know how I'm going to market this cereal that I guess was just like corn O's that kind of tasted like Captain Crunch. And she was going to name them the Freakies and design seven freaky characters to star in all the ads. Do you want to hear about the seven... (laughs) Freaky characters? I would literally love nothing more. Please. Okay, so she based them off of people that she knew in the office. So the first one was called Boss Moss, and he was the leader. And he was based on, like, her actual boss of the of the copywriting agency. And then the second one was Gargle. He was the know-it-all, and he was really mean and belittling. <laughs> Hamhose. Hamhose was the third one, and he was shy 
um, but supposedly loved ham sandwiches <laughs> and taking solitary walks through a garden hose because it's how he found peace within himself. Okay. Crumble is the fourth. He was the freaky with a bad attitude and complained a lot. Uh, Goody Goody was a kiss ass who always tried to get the others like in trouble with boss moss. Right. Snorkeldorf was the conceited one who used to carry mirrors and write love poems to himself. And the last one- To himself. Yeah, because he was the conceited freaky. Snorkeldorf, the conceited one. Keep up. Right. And then the last one was Cow Mumble, who was sweet and kind and had a crush on Boss Moss and Jackie End based it on herself. And all these characters, they look like vestigial organs to me. Um, Yeah. But the cereal came with several series of like collectibles that would come in the cereal boxes, like plastic figurines, iron-on patches and magnets, and also like tech deck looking things like cars. Um, But the thing is it was discontinued in 1975, which is a year before the show takes place. So is this just the oldest box of cereal that they have? Turning the page. (laughs) I mean, what I got is that the team behind Freakos, Freakies, what was it? Freakies. Behind Freakies put more thought into those characters than the Swingtown writers. I agree. So they killed Freakies in 1975, tried to bring them back in 1987, but they rebranded them as Surfing Space Monsters, and then that failed a year later. And then the the they had a jingle that went we are the freakies we are the freakies and this is our freaky tree we never miss a meal because we love our cereal we are the freakies i'm actually just so disappointed that this didn't succeed because i want this fucking cereal well they have these like little animated stories in the ads and to me it kind of looked like a combo of the pink elephant scene from dumbo but also schoolhouse rock and these ads were narrated by Burgess Meredith, who was the penguin to Adam West's Batman. And I'm just so fucking in the weeds with the freakies at this point. I'm not paying attention to the show. That's fucking right. That's the right way to watch this show if you have to. I mean, is to just get lost in the freakies. I think we need to point out this fucking lazy set design that this fucking props master or whatever picked up this cereal that had been discontinued a year previous. Where's the attention to detail? whose counter was it on was it janet or susan it was susan's house which makes me think i mean not because it was at susan's house but just the whole like this is catering to people that grew up in the 70s and i it it now feels like a cash grab to me i mean you know up until a few weeks ago susan was you know making breakfast for everyone so Maybe cereal just that had that cereal had just been sitting there for a year for all we know. I guess they just moved. They moved their very old cereal with them. It's for show. Maybe, maybe BJ just fucking loves freakies and it, it just became decor at that point. I just love that, like the marketing, the characters, you know, the storyline of the characters of freakies is so detailed but the cereal itself is like a cheerio yeah they had cocoa and fruity editions because it was a really competitive cold cereal market in the 70s i fell down the deepest hole with this would you say it's more competitive than the modern day cereal cold cereal market um i know very little about 
the current cold cereal market, a cat just jumped up on my hello. Okay. I beat you. Um, yeah, but that was it. Yeah, where's the new cereals? Where are all the new cereals at? Because I'm oh, getting they, bored. They've been they've been around. They it's usually like seasonal flavors that they try out and then they never come. No, out. I need like a new cereal brand with a new cereal box character. I need that fresh shit. So I think that you should design it. I think you should get fucking working on it. Well, then I would have to also come up with like a new cereal recipe. And I don't know anything about cereal. I only like Special K. I could use some right now, to be honest. Do we have any left or did it go stale? I don't know. I'm so hungry. Dude, me too. Okay, so episode 12. Woo! Come on, guys. Let's get some pep back in our fucking steps because we're getting a little droopy around here. And this is a fucking podcast. So I need your energy up. Let's get it's this Janet's birthday going. It's Janet's fucking birthday. Another party. Another party. Janet. So Roger interviews for his dream job while Janet begins excelling at her job at the paper. She even gets a chance to become the new advice columnist when one of her coworkers catches her giving really, really great, super duper gendered and old fashioned advice to the ladies around the office. And this is the episode where at first it's definitely supposed to seem like, oh, are her and this new work friend who's kind of like a handsome male i don't really remember his face but he's probably a handsome male um he's blonde i think are they about to you know like is she about to cheat on roger is this There's henry too much- his name is henry and he just like really gets janet he really likes her for who she is and he supports how skilled she is as a writer this is where i was like fuck yes janet janet's about to have her own fucking career she's about to just like walk into the chicago sun times and be the advice columnist janet's a superstar and her husband is dragging his fucking feet and falling in love with her best friend get it together roger i just got such gay bu- gay vibes off of henry well he was gay well, we find out he was end. gay but oh my God. But I think we weren't supposed to believe that. Like, at first, it's supposed to be, like, another, like, tempting figure, you know, in this show about all these people being enticed by people outside of their marriage. Um, I think, I, I don't know, I think ultimately it was just Janet making a friend that actually gets her. Shortly, like, right before we find out that he is gay, I believe I said the words, you know what, fucking Janet should just leave her husband and just become a full-time hag. She would be much happier. And then he comes out, or tells her that he's gay, and it's like, oh my god, this is meant to be. They should be besties. So He can complete her more than (laughs) Roger could. So Susan and Roger, of course, kissed, um, but she says that they need to spend some time apart because it's just not safe for them to be together since obviously they keep you know, trying to get physical every time they're alone together and they have all these vibes and it's just not fair to Janet. But they can't really have any time apart at the exact moment because it's Janet's birthday and they need to to throw Janet a birthday party together. So what they decide is instead of doing their annual dinner that's just Susan and Bruce and Roger and Janet, they're going to throw like a whole ass party and invite a whole bunch of people over so that they can avoid being alone together. Of course, inevitably, they still end up being alone together, even though they throw this whole ass party to avoid it. So they just don't seem very committed. 
While on another trip to the beach with her age-inappropriate boyfriend, Doug, Lori accidentally tells him that she loves him. This is one of the rare moments of comedy because he bends over into the cooler to let her know that he only has Yoohoo. Yoohoo, of course, being a really fun chocolate milk beverage. Um, she mishears him saying, I only have Yoohoo, and thinks he's saying, I love you. So she says, I love you too. Oh, he pretends not to have heard what she said. She pretends. I gasped out loud. I don't know why. Because they've been dating. As if I Because they've been much. dating for one month and he's her high school teacher. And I'm supposed to believe they're in love. Right. I'm in so, agony at this point. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's I, sick. I need it to end. So we find out that Doug's relationships usually don't last very long. One of the like main things that they keep trying to drive home for us is that Doug's acting different with Lori than he ever has in his relationships before. But a child. Yeah, maybe that's because he's never been able to get it up for any women his own age. And maybe he should, you know, get therapy. So, you know, but we do find out from one of Doug's friends that he only goes for smart girls. So I guess Lori's like smart that they Ugh. keep trying to fucking drive home for us. Being smart's overrated. So Doug's friend tells her that his relationships usually only last one month. Lori pulls him aside and says, look, Doug, like, I know you heard what I said and I'm not confused. You know, I know how I feel. I know that I love you. I know you heard me say it. And just let me know, you know, if you catch up and you get on my level. So, you know, she's very commanding. He pulls her aside at the end of the night and is like, look, Lori, I don't want to risk what we have. So I'm not going to accept the full-time position at the high school. So he's not going to become a teacher at her high school because then they'd have to hide their love. And he doesn't want to have to hide what they have because he, in fact, loves her back. Um, wow. So beautiful. Ugh. Why would you do that? Maybe because I'm underemployed. But I wouldn't give up a job as a 24-year-old for my 17-year-old girlfriend. You wouldn't? No! <laughs> I guess maybe because you wouldn't have a 17-year-old girlfriend in the first place. Probably not. If he takes a job at a, a high school... A 17-year-old boyfriend, though. I'm fully <laughs> kidding. If he takes a job at a high school, he's more likely to get caught and arrested. That's the episode I wanted out of this show. Right. So Trina is feeling ill and is very clearly pregnant. She confides in Janet that she's pregnant and they share a tender friendship moment. So this is big because of course they've been like at odds for most of the season, but slowly growing closer. So even though Trina is a dirty little swinger and Janet is an uptight prude, they've found common ground. Yeah, she hadn't even told Tom yet at that point. No, she never tells him on the show. Oh, she does it. She does at the end of the finale. Yeah. So Roger gets the job, but it's in Cincinnati. It's his dream job, but it means that the whole family has to relocate to Cincinnati. Instead of telling his wife, of course, the first person he tells is Susan, because he needs to know how Susan feels about him before he agrees to take a job in Cincinnati. He doesn't care if his wife wants to go to Cincinnati or not. He just wants to know if his wife's best friend has feelings for him, because if she does, then maybe he'll stay. But if not, he's going to drag his whole family to Cincinnati. Susan says, you should take the job. 
because I don't really want to betray my best friend and also my husband. Of course, Susan is being unnecessarily loyal to Bruce because Bruce is not loyal to her. Bruce is having a terrible time at this party. He feels like he doesn't know any of the people there. He's like low-key pissed at his wife for throwing her friend a birthday party because he doesn't know the guests. And it's like, well, it's not your party, Bruce. It's Janet's party. So suck it the fuck up. Um, But he's being so pouty for this whole fucking birthday party. He goes up to his bedroom, gets on the phone. And of course he calls Melinda his work crush. And he tells her, Melinda, like, is the window still open? I don't want you to take a job at another firm. If the window is still open, I'll come to you right now. I can't bear the thought of going into work and not seeing you there. Um, Then he makes up a lie and tells Susan that, you know, he left his briefcase at the office and he needs to go get it all the way in Chicago. And of course they live in the suburbs But little does he know, Susan heard him the whole time. So she knows that he was just on the phone with Melinda and she knows exactly what's going on. Plus she can see that his briefcase is out in plain view. So he didn't leave that shit in Chicago. But this is an interesting thing for Susan. She just goes along with it and lets him go into the arms of Melinda. Because at this point we're realizing Susan doesn't love Bruce. She's disappointed. She barely likes him. She's disappointed with him. He doesn't get her off. He doesn't like her. He doesn't treat her with respect. He's not very nice to their kids. And he wants to be with the younger model. So go on your merry way, Bruce. Go into Melinda's arms. We're not going to miss you. End scene. End episode. Why is that so hard? I know, I'm exhausted. But you know what? It's what we do for the fans. You're really so good, Dad. I know, what can I say? The finale is not really good. Actually, I'm getting there later. Thank God. Nope, whatever. Guys, the time has come. It's the fucking Sewingtown finale. We've all been dragging our corpses here, but it's fucking go time. So, so it's Labor Day and Tom just being the really fun guy that he is, you know, he throws an end of year or end of summer clam bake every year. He's really quirky like that. So he orders a bunch of fucking clams and lobsters and shit. It's like the ninth and party really- that they've thrown. <laughs> That's all the show has been. <laughs> Um, yeah, well, it, it, I literally turned to Abby and was like, oh, when the world opens up and like, I have money, I just want to constantly be throwing parties. Not like these, though. I mean, I love entertaining. And I love being promiscuous. I'll say it. I think when the world opens up, you know, I'm going to be going about things a little differently than I did last round. So... The big, one of the big dramas of this episode is Doug, teacher Doug. Um, He finds out that his close personal friend, ex-roommate, who is currently in Guatemala, is missing after the big earthquake. He was over there, you know, doing the Peace Corps, and Doug is really fucking worried about his friend. They can't get any information. So, you know, I guess Doug has to go to Guatemala. That's the only 
And then it was once again reminded me of the plotline in episode in season like seven of Pretty Little Liars when Ezra's like boo thing is like lost in Columbia or something. Isn't his boo thing Lucy Hill? Not after the time jump. Don't you think Doug Spoiler. and Ezra also low-key looked kind of similar? I mean, they're both white men with curly black hair. I like got their, I, th- I thought they're like bone structure was very similar but maybe that's just my only other point of reference i think ezra's more pointy whereas doug aka michael just has kind of just a a warmer how old is ezra supposed to be on pretty little liars i think he's supposed to be the same age like 24 like just having graduated from yeah because you like have to have a master's degree to teach public high school yeah. So Brett Robertson, who I know we haven't talked about in a while, um, has to move in with her aunt because her aunt is placing her messy fucking mom into rehab. So I guess Brett Robertson has to move to like the neighboring town for six weeks. This is really devastating for Bruce Jr., BJ, because they've been like, you know, falling in tween love with each other. Yeah. Britt Robertson's been killing it, um, acting-wise. We're not going to mention any more of it because, you know, it's a storyline that... I love the line that the aunt throws. Because I guess the the strung-out mother's name is Gail. And the aunt has this beautiful, fluffy wig. It's like a sentient, feathered wig. But she yells at Gail. She says, Mom's six feet under, which is exactly where you're headed, Gail. Gail! Gail's like fun. Want I want to party with Gail. I want to know what's in that tinfoil room. Yeah. I want 70s hair. I feel like I was born to have 70s hair. I can't believe it took me this long to realize. I feel like you've known. You just have to put the work in. So Susan confronts Melinda, and it's a really hilarious scene because Melinda doesn't give a fuck. And Susan cares too much for a man who is trifling and she barely likes. Essentially, Melinda is like, you know, we connect. We haven't had sex yet, but we connect. You know, we talk about baseball. 20%. And Bruce just, exactly. Bruce just doesn't think you guys connect. And it's like, where's the lie? So Doug has to go to Guatemala, as I previously mentioned. And Lori wants to go with him. And he's like, but you have like school. And she's like, you know what? I'll take off a week. I'll take off a semester. I don't give a fuck. Like, she paints it as not going for him, but with him, you know, she cares about this crisis. It's really important to her. It's not about their relationship. It's about the humanitarian crisis in Guatemala. So as we learned, Trina is with child and she assumes that Tom doesn't want the baby. You know, they have never wanted children. Tom is essentially a big man child. So she just plans to have kind of like a quiet abortion. Um, But with Susan's encouragement, Trina ends up telling Tom and he really surprises her and he's more receptive to the idea. You know, he's like, look, I'm open to it. Like, I think that we should talk about it. We should think about it. And it's wonderful. And it's just like, it's once again, like, yes, communication. Yes, Yes, Tom and Trina set a positive example for everyone else who fails to take any of your advice. Exactly. So... Roger has taken this job, you know, he wants it. I guess they're moving to Cincinnati, except Janet doesn't want it. You know, she, she has been, she 
she's doing really well at the paper. She finally got this advice column and she tells him that she wants to stay. And he's like, um, listen up, bitch. This is of course an interpretation. Listen up, bitch. You're the heart of this family, but I'm the head. So we're going to do what I want to do. And up until this point, you know, I really liked Tom because he's so pathetic. I'm sorry, excuse me. I really liked Roger because he's so pathetic. But at this point, um, this is not the man I've grown to admire. So I'm I mean, done. I just Janet deserves better. I than don't him. live in that world. So I sometimes, because of who I surround myself with, forget that there really are people who live by this like the husband is the head of the household and he's like in charge of everything and the wife just follows his instruction. Like there's actually people who live like that. Um, it's not for me. It couldn't be me. And ultimately it's not for Janet either. At the end of summer clam bake, which ends up being a key party, which is really exciting, but it's like by this point, we're all so drained that we don't give a fuck and cannot be excited about a key party. Well, it's also a key party where none of the leads end up participating and we don't get to see any of the results of the key swapping. Correct. For those who don't know, I, we, we have just been talking about, you know, swinging culture, you know, without assuming that people know. So at a key party, you know, the couples drop their keys in a bowl and, you know, half of the couples, you, you, you pick up a key and you go home with that person. That's That's the gist of a key party. Sounds really fun. I would like to go to one. I think they're an invention by Hollywood because I have surveyed, again, the internet. And they're like, yeah, I don't know if that's a good idea. And I'm like, I'm not talking about good idea. I'm just saying the theater of it sounds like a good time. If you want a really good key party scene, The Ice Storm, 1997, Kevin Klein, Sigourney Weaver, Joan Allen. I'm going to stop talking about The Ice Storm because we have to finish this. <laughs> literally never stop talking about the ice storm so right susan confronts bruce you know she tells him that she knows that he's fucking cheating and he's like i didn't even have sex with melinda and she's like it's about the lying it's about confiding in this woman you know it's the emotional cheating and she's pissed and then he yells at her because of course he's the worst he can't accept an ounce of responsibility not a fucking ounce there's a reason why Everyone hates you, Bruce. So she ends up reaching in for the key and storming off with another man, which it's like, what a bummer for that man, because, you know, Susan doesn't want to have sex with him. And it's like, he probably got so excited. Susan's beautiful. She's gorgeous. She she doesn't end up having sex with him. So she really just stole his key party experience and then didn't even give him like the whole, the key. So Lori decides to go out to Guatemala without telling her parents. She, like, makes up a lie about, like, spending the night with Doug because he's really sad. And Abby, you thought that her, you thought Susan could tell. I did it. Probably because I didn't, it, it just didn't phase me. I, I wasn't trying to, to look deeper. I really thought Susan could tell because she, like, Lori was straight up wearing a backpack and I could, I, I don't know. I mean, Susan would have to be, like, a completely clueless idiot to not figure out what was going on and i really did get the sense where she was just like yeah my daughter is going to guatemala with her adult boyfriend and i'm just gonna let it happen <laughs> i would have been happy if Lori left but you know doug wants better for her so doug leaves without her but he writes her what i think is supposed to be a really touching letter and just leaves her the keys to his apartment 
It's just like nice to see Doug do the right thing for once in his fucking life. Um, you know, he's going to Guatemala to do humanitarian aid and he's giving his girlfriend a chance to turn 18 and graduate from high school. <laughs> and he's giving her her own apartment. This is my ideal relationship where you be in a different country and I live in my in your house by myself. So the episode ends with Bruce running to Melinda, into Melinda's arms and making out with her um, because of his fight with Susan. And then while at home, Susan gets a call from Roger. He was supposed to get on a plane to go to Cincinnati to like scope out houses, but he couldn't do it. So he invites Susan to his hotel room. And that's the last image that we see in Swingtown. Are Susan and Roger, you know, these... Star-crossed lovers. These star... (laughs) Turns out memorizing poetry can come in handy, Roberto. (laughs) These star-crossed lovers, you know, will they... And you fucking... You know, had it gotten a season two, it would have opened, first of all, a month later, and Susan and Roger had not had sex. I want to burn Swingtown to the ground. You never have to watch it again. You watched it twice. That's more than, that's two more times than anyone should have to see it. I love that you watched it twice. I mean, I love that you hated it, but watched it twice. That is what we fucking want. That's in, the thing, though. On our show. I didn't hate it the first time. Like, I thought it kind of dragged its feet for a few episodes, but maybe just because it, it, it's just not a show that holds up to scrutiny or time. So, it's not a show for me. I feel like in the alternate universe, I would have sacrificed Big Love for an HBO Swingtown. I feel like that would make my list of the very few TV shows I enjoy. But, um, you know, we can't all be happy. I mean, that's the thing is that I didn't actually hate every second of it. There were certain things I liked. I liked Susan's growth as a character. I liked watching her sort of like try to find herself. I liked watching Janet find herself with this career. Um, and I really enjoyed Trina and Tom as characters. And I liked all of the dance club scenes and whenever they would go to sex clubs. And I enjoyed the porn party. Yeah. I mean, I, I set it up top. It's like, these. this is all subject matter that I'm really into. And it's a setting I'm really into, but I could fill a Rolodex with things that do it so much better than this (laughs) and that's the thing it was a fine watch it was boring at times it was irritating at times but i'm so i was so passionate during this recap because of how exciting it should have been so with that said you know let's wind this down it's time for the swing town incident report date of cancellation January 14th, 2009, four months after the season one conclusion of Swingtown. The immediate cause of death, I, you know, it should have been a murder on the dance floor. And it ended up being a sad, slow evaporation, I guess, into suburbia. Um, as a consequence of CBS, there's, there's only one to blame. CBS and I guess maybe Mike Kelly. In this case, the Quaaludes were not enough. That was awesome. Do either of you have parting words, a eulogy for Swingtown? 
I was going to do a eulogy, but honestly, I don't feel like I connected enough to be able to do it justice with words. I feel like maybe a real life swinger or someone that cares about 14 year old boys <laughs> or someone that thinks a relationship between a 17 year old and their 24 year old teacher in high school is okay. You know, maybe that person should eulogize this show, but I'm not her. I c- it just couldn't be me. Do you have any parting words for this show, Cornelia? Um, I think that Swingtown should just be a reminder to us all, creatives, deviants, precocious teenagers, that we should all try to do better and do more and be bolder and yes. to fill our life with color yes. and fondue yes. and uh, illicit illegal substances Mm. and um non-monogamy yeah non-monogamy love who you want love freely use protection uh fuck the patriarchy i guess definitely right let the 70s live in our souls through the music and the aesthetics, the colors, the disco balls, the yes. jumpsuits. Stream, stream the Steve Miller band on Spotify. I'm just kidding. I'm not, I don't, I literally do anything. Else, but, uh, <laughs> this, this show, if anything, just listen to the soundtrack because the soundtrack is my favorite part. It is really fun. Is there a soundtrack for Swingtown on Spotify? I mean, it's my Spotify. The literally your entire Spotify. <laughs> I mean, if you want to get the the true spirit of Swingtown without having to sit through the disappointing story, just listen to Cornelia Spotify. It's really fun. I recommend. So before we wrap this up, um, you know, we just want to take a last look at our ranking um, of the top five shows that we have covered most deserving of getting canceled. Um, our latest ranking, we have at the number... Five spot, Brittany and Kevin Chaotic. At the number four spot, The Bedford Diaries. Number three, Zero Hour. Number two, Mob City. And the show that has been holding on to the number one spot, you know, the show most deserving of getting canceled, is the Ashton Kutcher produced The Beautiful Life, colon, TBL. I feel confident in saying that Swingtown um, should fall at the number five spot, bumping Britney and Kevin chaotic. I think that it had better character and better story than um, everything else this far. And that's unfortunately saying a lot. What What's our current number four? The Bedford Diaries. I just feel like the Bedford Diaries had worse dialogue and worse character. I'm going to say... That if I had to choose between which show, Bedford Diaries or Swingtown, they're both about sexuality. Which one would I want to watch season two of? <laughs> right. I might. No, I guess Swingtown. I don't know. I was going to say Bedford Diaries, but now that I think about well, it. I thought so too, because I enjoyed watching the Bedford Diaries. But if like in terms of better shows, like the Bedford Diaries is kind of more of a joke. A, a more of a joke watch, I feel like. Whereas Swingtown 
had at least set me up for a season two where I get to see, you know, what happens between Susan and Roger. Ultimately, although it wasn't the show about swingers that I wanted, I ended up kind of caring about some of the characters. And that's maybe more than I can say about the Bedford Diaries. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to have to agree with you then. Let's put it in at number five. Amazing. With that, Cornelia, it has been an absolute blast. The way that you have sat for the past four hours (laughs) talking about (laughs) this CBS show is commendable. And I mean, it's been a long time coming. Thank you so much for having me. If this hasn't been an awful experience, we, of course, would love to have you back. You're our friend in real life, and we'd love for you to be a friend of the pod. Uh, I'd love to be a friend of the pod. Um, As we mentioned before, do you want to talk about love portions a bit before we go? Oh, I mean, if anybody's interested, I have carried my uh, penchant for the outdated and the ghoulish to my own podcast. It's called Love Portions. I host it with a friend of mine from uh, high school, Carolyn. We're just cooking our way through an old erotic cookbook that I've had for a really long time and testing whether or not they're actually sexy or not. Um, It's fun. Abby's on it as a as a supporting character so you know we have a good time abby well we love you very much and thank you so much stream dearly departed stream love portions for clear skin follow our social medias and you can follow cornelia link in the description xoxo